Welcome back to a new episode of the Power Podcast. Happy to have finally released this episode that was recorded last December. So much has changed that I'm glad I did not release it back then. Call it flair. Call it media genius. I'll wait. Let me introduce you to Adam Zawalski, a business law professor at Babson College by day, and by night, an author of the book Extreme Entrepreneurship, available online, and of course, I will link his details. Can you tell he likes to challenge himself? By the time of the recording, Adam was in Warsaw researching God knows what, while things in Ukraine were not getting better. Okay, I'm not an alarmist, but why will I leave a certain comfort of life to see what is happening in a war zone? only have one reason and one reason only. The Lord Jesus Christ sent me there and so far he has not done so. Anyway, let me take you to this long but engaging conversation I had with him where he was scouting African entrepreneurs in what others call remote or exotic places, Burundi, DRC, Rwanda or Kenya. With him being an outsider, he gave his approach with humility and here I want to emphasize humility. If you know about Babson College, you know this private institution has been ranked number one for its undergraduate school in entrepreneurship. When I met him last year in Paris, I didn't know what to expect. A professor wanted to hear about Africa, especially about entrepreneurship in Burundi. This is how it is with Adam. We were supposed to get a coffee, meaning chatting for about an hour or so. And we end up chatting for almost four hours, including having lunch. Don't be afraid of the two-hour conversation. You can pause the episode and get a drink. Adam is accessible on social media. Try LinkedIn first. And, oh, by the way, if you're the type of person who gets offended easily, I guess this episode will hurt you profoundly because I called him Umuzungu. He was not offended. Of course, this is tongue-in-cheek, but nowadays, one has to be careful about everything. As always, I aim to reach a million downloads per episode. So here's me asking for your help. Share, share, share. Power Podcast is on all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Afripods, Odap, if you're in Nigeria. Power Podcast via Woody Studios is also on Patreon. If you want to support my podcast, find the link on the show notes. Until next time. So we are catching a, a moment of wardrobe change. I, I realize that a shaved head with a black shirt is not a good look. I, I don't want to send any kind of visual cue that I might be a closet fascist or apparently, you know, might look like an open, open. That's a good fascist. one. No, I am not. I'm not any kind of fascist. No. Here I am in a, in a, I don't know if a, a tan colored jacket looks a little bit less menacing. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's much better. That's much better because, okay. Uh, okay. I mean, you saw yourself as a fascist. I didn't see it until you said it. So, and I'm <laughs> pretty sure I don't include fascists on my podcast. So there you go. Paul podcast is live. Okay. And with Adam, well, you know, I, I just, I'm just glad that this is not a brown shirt because I, I think they once wore brown shirts in the neighboring country and that did not end well for us on the Polish that side of the border. So here. So I am not a fascist, not a fascist. <laughs> but it looks like you know your history. So, which is good because, you know, nowadays everybody's everything and nothing at the same time. So pretty as, cool to as, see. As, as, as a judge, a famous judge once said that a page of history is worth a thousand of logic if you want to understand 
reality. And I think you, it looks like you appreciate that quote, huh? Ooh, that's a good one. That's uh, okay. That's uh, good to know. If you want, it's not just understanding the law. I think it's understanding any country, any economic system, any, any region's politics and culture. Uh, it's, it's all about knowing the history that yeah, explains more than explains more than logic. There you go. That's why we're here on podcast. That's why I do this because people don't know much about a lot of things. And some of us, or some of them actually really pretend. So there you go, Adam, you're here on the podcast, follow podcast. And it's funny because I have to go through a lot of things before we dig deep into why you're here as a guest. Funny enough, this is the 13th of December, and I think there's a U.S.-Africa summit happening right now in D.C. It's going to happen for two days, and so many things are being thrown out, you know, the New York Times, not that I read the whole articles, but just to get a glimpse of what's happening. We're going to talk about Africa, entrepreneurship, community, future, you know, PR, whatever, law and everything. But before we dig into that, who are you? Thank you for asking, uh, and thank you for having me on your program. Uh, first and foremost, I am a professor. Mm-hmm. I teach at a business school. Uh, it's called Babson College, and in the rankings for many, many years, we can say decades, it's been ranked number one for entrepreneurship. There you go. Now, I teach something that the students do not sign up for. <laughs> I, I teach law. Uh, and Until I read a word association test a few years ago, I did not know that they have nothing but negative associations with my subject. When I asked them before the class started, hey, write down what comes to mind when you hear the word law. And I read them back what I got. We all started laughing. I'm like, more than half of these are horrible words, like punishment, expensive, complicated, unnecessary, prevents my business from doing things. Uh, The department of no. Yeah, they see see lawyers as costly, arrogant, um, and get in the way of business. And I realized, oh my God, how could I be so blind? I thought I was teaching the most interesting stuff. No. So I, I flipped the script right away. I learned to say, okay, let's do the word association test. I start every semester with that laugh that, oh, none of you want to be here. <laughs> and then I say, welcome to the greatest course ever. No, really. This is the course where we're going to teach you how to make your dreams come true and avoid your nightmares. And there's big, there's the big five. I have sometimes 80% international students. So if somebody's wondering, all right, professor, what do you actually teach? And is it useful? Um, I had to figure out how to present it to our graduate classes that is sometimes, no kidding, 80% international students, sometimes from Africa. And some of them, you know, are very open. They're like, you know, you don't get our legal system. (laughs) Sometimes all there is is workarounds. You can't trust the legal system. I hear that from people all over the world. And and so what I learned to do was to start telling stories. I, I love to travel. I started traveling when I realized I didn't know the world. I, I knew the United States and Europe, and that's like barely 10% of the world. 90% of the world is in Asia, Africa, or elsewhere. Um, so I started to travel to understand, to do my job better, so that when I have students from somewhere else, I can say, ah, been there, all right? Oh, your capital city? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe know something, like how to say hello. Yeah. And not be totally oblivious to you know what it's like to wake up to a call to prayer. Uh, or what a refugee camp is like when you walk in, or you know what a factory in China looks like. That's the reality where our students sometimes are going to come go back to. And I have to be able to communicate what is there valuable about my course about law, taking a course on law in the United States that actually is relevant to going back and doing business somewhere else. So I started to collect stories from my travels of entrepreneurs, people who had started innovative new things, mostly businesses, sometimes charities. That somehow, despite uh, challenges, limited resources, could be poverty, there could be conflict, mm-hmm. there could be ethnic strife, 
somehow figured out how to bring a new organization into reality and change the lives of other people and themselves for the better. Maybe they made some money at it. Um, normally these stories are, you know, the classic hero's journey of somebody with a great idea with all these challenges and somehow, you know, makes things work, even if the story is not beautiful and perfect always. And, and there's, and there's five takeaways I flagged for them. Look, the stories that we cover will highlight how five big topics, even if you think that they only matter in the United States, no, no, of course not. Anywhere you go where you have people trying to work together, five topics related to law will always come up. How to form your organization, whether you bother with the formalities, what kind of organization do you want to form? A charity selling for profit? Do you want international people involved? You want to keep it local? Well, that's, that's organization formation. Even more fundamental, you can't do anything in this world without an agreement with somebody else. You and I had an agreement for me to show up today. Uh, you know, you're making agreements every day. The question is, how do you know when they're enforceable? What do you do when somebody breaks their word? And how do you negotiate so that if it's a business transaction or a donation or an investment, right? So contracts. So organization formation, contracts are the first two big subjects. Second one is intellectual property. When you have a new idea or the name of your company, um, how do I keep other people from stealing it? Do I want other people to borrow it and use it? Uh, fourth big topic is what happens when you hurt people? How do you resolve liability issues? Uh, and finally, something else indispensable anywhere you go in the world, it could be North Korea uh, or, or it could be Cuba where capitalism to some extent has been illegal um, for a long time. Great. I got a great story in my first book from there. Um, working with other people is something you cannot avoid, mm. right? You, you have to work with other people normally to produce a product or a service or or even charitable uh, service. So, so that's the fifth big topic you can't get away from. And the collection of stories eventually I decided to publish as a book. Mm-hmm. So I can say I am an author. <laughs> it's a great holiday gift. So there buy it in bulk. There yeah. you go. It's true. Sometimes mistakes on Amazon, you can get it for less than two euro in some European. Yeah, I should put my publisher before this goes live. Anyways, the point is... Um, it was number one on several Amazon lists, so it can't be that bad. And I swear it wasn't just friends and family buying all of them. <laughs> Although um, in university. <laughs> and, and I'm happy. And it's not just forced purpose purchases. No, um, I am happy to, uh, you know, if somebody does uh, buy a bunch for friends and family, happy to, to go anywhere and do a book talk and sign some. So if somebody wants to invite me somewhere. Africa uh, is calling, you know. Invite me for a book talk and to collect. Ah, this is important. Thank you for having me on because anybody listening to this, I'm currently planning the last half of my sabbatical every seven years you can apply if you have a really good research project you can apply for a year free from teaching i'm right now researching my second book so if there's an entrepreneur out there again it could be an entrepreneurial leader in a family business Mm -hmm. a startup in a charity in a business anywhere there are so many african countries i still have not been to i don't have a glimmer of understanding about Mm -hmm. And that makes for something's the best chapters uh, with a, a brief summary of context and how somebody is doing something really interesting in that context. My students love those stories. People who follow me on social media love those stories. So if somebody out there wants to be interviewed, happy to visit, write up their story. And with that, I will finally stop talking. No, no, it's all good. No, before we go into that, because I remember when we met in Paris, actually, can you just, you know. Can you share how we met in Paris? Because it was so funny. And I remember sharing the story afterwards with a friend. They're like, who knew about Barundi? Like, who knew? like this is the beauty of Google or whatever. I was blown away. It was so cool. So I think what happened was, what I've learned is that, uh, you know, at least half the stories, you, you, you can't completely plan. Um, you can plan to go somewhere. You can plan, oh, I think this is the person I want to talk to. 
but a big chunk of, I think a majority of the time you don't know. You just, by showing yeah. up, you're like, the person on the airport doesn't look threatening. I think I could ask them for a ride. <laughs> and, and they end up having a great story, like driving a food truck. And they say, man, I want to re restore pride in local culture. Do you know we have a genocide here? And like local traditions were wiped out. I want to bring food, you know, pride in local food back. And you're like, wow, what a cool person yeah uh, keep talking man i thought i just wanted to ride but he's like yeah let me show you my restaurant and, and before you know it you're writing about them and they're and they're introducing you to people who introduce you to somebody yeah. else and before you know it you're talking to the person who set up the first newspaper after a war uh so that's how things happen sometimes when you land in a place even if you only have a, a day or two and you're like ah this is just to just to check it off the map nothing i'm not going to discover anything here and then Boom, you find your greatest chapter of content. So sometimes I want to prep to, to I'm going to get to your, answer to your question, but I want to preface it that this is not unusual. I've learned to just accept this after many years that you cannot plan who you will meet. Mm. And I did know that there was a higher probability if I did show up for, I think it was the Afrotech Arena in yeah, Paris absolutely. in June. Mm -hmm. There's some kind of a huge tech startup event. And I thought, mm, all right, I'm in Poland, budget flight, I'll drop in for a few days and you know, it's, it's, you could call it a fishing expedition. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. Well, plenty of these people look interesting. I don't know. And then, and then you start talking and you got your list of countries. You know, oh, I was invited to a hackathon in Rwanda. That's how I knew I needed to be in that area. And I knew that was July. And I started asking people, man, there's these countries around Rwanda. <laughs> yes, they are. Do you know anybody who's been to Burundi? I've never met anybody who's been to Burundi. <laughs> And somebody, I think, recommended you. I yeah. think that's how it Yeah, I think You're it like, was Simon. Alex. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Alex. All right. Hey, Alex. Yeah. I just messaged you or emailed yeah. you. And you're like, okay, yeah. I'm like, and then you said, let's meet for coffee. Yeah. I'm like, all right. It was so crazy because I remember just reading this email. I was doing the Afrobytes. Was it an email? No, it was, at, was, um, it it was email? LinkedIn. Okay. It was LinkedIn and it was through Simon. And Simon had just done like something with him. I moderated a panel with him and I spoke about Burundi at some point and I think, you know, he stayed with him. And I was like, who in the world will ask me about Burundi? And I'm reading this text at 2 a.m. And I'm, you know, like writing some reports and stuff and stuff. And I was like, no, no, no I'm really intrigued. And then I see you and I'm like, this is a only East Africans will understand this, I guess. But this is a crazy Muzungu, you know. You know what I mean? Like, why There's a profile. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, uh, is he legit? And then we start talking, and I'm like, oh, actually, you, oh, okay, you, you're not crazy. You know, you, you know, you, you know, your job. But for, that really stuck with me was that you didn't have that savior complex. And for me, it's really something that really bothered me, and still bothers mm -hmm. me uh, forever. Is to say is that I know community, I know what Africa needs, and I know this and that, and it's not the same when you get mm -hmm. to speak with people who are just trying to understand the continent, trying to understand regions, and trying to understand some uh, countries. And there I say I have been only in two, two countries, Kenya and Ethiopia, out of the uh, 54. So I don't know much about Africa, honestly. You know, mm -hmm. I think you know more when you've been there on the ground and everything. So there's some ugliness that I know about Africa. There's some mm -hmm. beauty that I know about Africa. Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to talk about, and for all of us, uh, I think listeners for this episode that will drop you know, at the end of the year, is to say, how can we integrate what we know mm -hmm. and just allow others to give us like a, um, a fair assessment of us happening on the ground and not to say, hey, Africans will mm -hmm. only have answers because I don't think it's true. 
but because you have your experiences are you know low and sometimes you can say like what is low in some countries <clears throat> still you know and my mom is a lawyer so it's funny enough i always mm-hmm. tease her about that For, before starting to this before we go into the, these the, uh, these stories what is for you justice oh wow i did not expect that i know it starts somewhere <laughs> so i think we i hate to start with this but after after many many years of thinking about it teaching about law you know the only things that are that we can prove outside of the human realm right is is physics chemistry and biology and there there is no definition in those for justice So I think we have to start with this, you know, the the universe, the sun, what we can empirically test outside of the spiritual world, outside of our beliefs and what we create doesn't seem to really care if there's a mass extinction event, you can have 90% of the life forms on this planet wiped out uh from a comet or an asteroid impact. You can have that kind of mass death. The universe does not care. It doesn't seem to. It's happened before several times on this planet. we're in a period of mass extinction now so we're perfectly capable of living with a huge amount of injustice so i think we have to start with that that even if we consider ourselves to be caring good people whatever that means we're able to reconcile and live with a lot of injustice injustice for some people is inequity the fact that there are people that don't have enough to eat and without basic needs met but those people exist right down the street from us whether you're in Nairobi or whether you're in New York I'm sorry you can be in Manhattan and meet plenty of good people that want to save the world that have reconciled that yeah you you live every day near people that are suffering and some people are suffering internally so so where am I going with this I'm going with this <laughs> that I we all know what it's like to be treated unfairly we know when we see somebody else treated unfairly we know when we see even an animal treated brutally for no good reason that that we think something is wrong mm. and and we learn to feel that at an early age and that's good because you need that for society but i don't know if it exists outside of what we create mm. and i think that even within the reality that we as humans create we seem to on a regular basis if we're objective about our history we seem to really do a lot of injustice to each other all the time it just keeps repeating and yeah i'm i'm this is being recorded in late 2022 my family lived through some of the worst of world war 2 i had family members killed as civilians in you know in combat or in camps that were set up to kill people civilians right so i'm i'm right now near the border with two countries that are at war one killing the civilians of another it just i don't know if justice exists outside of what we create and what we decide to the standards that we create and the standards that we decide to uphold so it really bothers me when people think that it exists outside of what humans create because i don't think the universe provides any evidence that the universe cares and we ourselves aren't very good at maintaining um fair or equitable treatment of each other um so it's a great question but it really comes down to what we create what we decide is okay and we need to go back and and remember that through through millennia in our history 
we, uh, I'm going to go there. You know, slavery was fine. It was within norms mm -hmm. in, in many, on many continents for many centuries until we decided that's not okay. I think that's pretty good evidence that, uh, it, you know, justice has existed at a time when some systems claim to have had law. So it really comes down to what humans create and what we decide is okay. Um, and what, what do you think? Uh, am I speaking nonsense? No, no, I think for me, no, no, this is, no, 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 because I think those are the questions that I asked before. Um, like, for example, I have my mom who's a lawyer and my dad who's an economist, and I studied finance because I think finance made sense. It's a bit of both. I had like business law uh, classes, but I think it's a, it's a good combination because I, th I think I show something that I could, like something that was theoretical, and then you could put it in practice. This is finance for me. Justice, you know, corporate law, business law, family laws. Those are the things really for me that I think I'll be depressed. Because as you said, the definition of justice, depending on these different places, depending if it is Iran or Burundi or South Africa, the way you treat women, the way you treat kids, you know, the, the whole thing for me was kind of a mess. And I remember just having some conversations and I was like, I don't woman, it's my mom. But I was like, hey, lady, I don't know how you guys do it because I will just literally no i will cry all the time literally because there's an unfairness that's happening in this world but at the end of the day you have to do something and i think entrepreneurship and business private sector really has a huge role to play in in community and in the world i guess you know it's not a perfect space but whatever and i think for me <laughs> i put it in my faith and i say that you know uh, this is sin. This is the results of sin. I don't know how to put it. It's just, you know, as I say, like people really don't care. At some point, slavery was fine. <laughs> I will dare to say that some spaces there's slavery is still alive, be it in Africa or in the US, the way we treat uh, inmates over there. It's it's a pretty difficult thing for me to comprehend. Yeah. There are two schools of thought. And I honestly, I think like a lot of humans, I can be very confused because the more you learn, the more you see, the more you, we were just talking about some, some moral ambiguity about things that we thought were, were cut and dry a few minutes before we started recording. There are two schools of thought. And the one that you just sort of alluded to with some faith in, in God or, or actually it doesn't even need to require a faith in, in God, but it typically goes together that there is some kind of universal timeless, justice right so there's there are kind of two two views legal positivism that you know there's there's nothing but what we define as humans um as the rule and then there's natural law philosophers that that you know whether it's uh ken sarawiba or or mahatma gandhi or Lech Wałęsa or martin luther king pick your your rights activist on, on any continent in any century and you'll you'll hear the same phrases that um you know that, that there are universal rights and that uh, that we know it when we see it we can figure it out with our human intuition and and that it does exist out, right and wrong do exist outside of what we decide is acceptable mm. but it's really hard some days to look at the world objectively and think that there's a lot of evidence that we're good at, at and uh, plenty of other people would say we we've had incredibly dark millennia and that we seem to be getting better. But you just pointed something out, Alex, that's huge. They, they say that the percentage of humans in slavery is at its lowest point, but that the absolute number of slaves is highest. I've never dug into it very, very in depth. It's not my specialty. But if somebody wants to Google that, 
Um, there's plenty of people that have studied it that say that the conditions of slavery are near slavery, that in terms of the absolute number of people, that it's at its highest point ever. Uh, Percentage-wise, it's low because there's so mm. many of us. Yeah. But because there's so many of us, it takes a tiny percent to qualify as still the largest number ever, like like more than when we had the transatlantic slave trade. That is crazy. So, so something for people to look into if they're really curious about that topic. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was part of a, <clears throat> sorry, I was, I was, did I say organization that was, do, that was uh, checking some um, slavery stuff. And it is, I mean, I think I did it for a year or two and uh, it's heavy. It's called A21. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's, but I mean, somebody has to do it. Anyway, I was at uh, one of those trainings. It's funny you mentioned that uh, mm-hmm. just a few weeks ago, we were, we were, I was at the largest refugee center here in Warsaw for Ukrainian refugees, and they just had a training on human trafficking. And it's unbelievable that in the places where you find the, you know, people uh, moving in the millions, uh, you will immediately have predators and immediately Absolutely. have a gray in the black market. And and people very quickly start to see the patterns that what watch out for the people lingering here, offering uh, mm-hmm. sometimes being too nice. Some sometimes they're wonderful volunteers doing heroic things helping, but you got to watch out for the people that seem to be heroes that are actually there to uh, scout. Yeah. That's sad. It's just, I mean, anyway, I mean, we have to start somewhere. We have to start this conversation somewhere. So let me say this. You say that you love traveling and, you know, uh, according to your feed, LinkedIn feed and Instagram feed, you really do, but it's not like you're going to these, you know, exotic places and, you know, <laughs> going and, tan and buy some uh, mojito and something like that why do you decide to travel into difficult spaces the book in the preface mm-hmm. um i'm very candid about it that i felt i won the lottery when i got a job as a teacher because you're helping people learn about the world and it's a really interesting world it's really messy it's complicated it's um there are opportunities to do really exciting things if you're in the world of business right organize people to get something new created and, and help people while hopefully creating some wealth, right? So that's a very exciting mission, but I felt like a charlatan. I think that's literally the word I use. In other words, a pretender. Hmm. And it's for that, the reason I, I mentioned in passing earlier, um, I knew I was going to be teaching a lot of international students and I'd really never been outside of the United States and Europe. And that was about 17 years ago. I took a, um, a large amount of the savings I had left and spent it on visas <laughs> and plane tickets. And the, my first stop was actually, I, I, I forgot about this. I thought, oh my God, I'm being a charlatan all over again. Here I am on an Africa podcast. What do I know about Africa? Not much. My first stop was friends in Nairobi. And I was, I was almost a month there. I worked for Ben Musau. Ben, if you see this, we worked on the trade law. They wanted to simplify uh, foreign direct investment. So they wanted, they, they called it the guillotine strategy, which sounds very macabre, but it was just his, I think it's Ben Massal's word. Ben, feel free to correct us if we're wrong. Uh, Ben's idea or or somebody came up with the term that they were going to cut like with a guillotine, a whole bunch of complicated regulations that were interfering with uh, ease of investment. If, I, if my memory is right from 17 years ago. So that was the sort of the volunteer gig that, you know, I just asked around, hey, is there like a trade lawyer I could just spend a few oh, weeks okay. shadowing and working with? You know, I can I can speak and read and write, you know, I'm not totally useless. I'm going to sort of licensed in two U.S. states for law. I know nothing about Africa, but, you but know, hey, just be a goofy Mazungo and just follow a good lawyer. And they said, Ben Masao, go, go, go talk to Ben. So he's been great. We just caught up this, this past summer briefly. Anyways, that was my first stop. 
And then the next stop, I just, you know, I'd heard that the biggest slum in the world was there. So I was like, mm. well, never African slum. I guess I should see that. Right. So hung out in Kibera for a few days. And uh, it's, full, it's, it's funny. One of the things that um, blew my mind was just how many NGOs there are. You can't throw a rock without hitting an NGO. And I'm like, yeah. wow. Uh, um, and, you know, people were happy to, to show me around and they said, hey, you're, you're a professor, right? And I'm like, well, I've, I've been hired to be one. <laughs> like, well, say something. Say something interesting and smart. Um, I'm like, all right. What do you guys want to know? Um, so it was very, very interesting. It was a great visit. Um, and in the sense that it was, you know, again, it was the whole point was I'd never been here. I was to answer your question. I was about to teach international students. I knew 80% sometimes of our classes are international students at a lot of American business schools. And I knew nothing about this stuff. I knew these mm -hmm. places existed, but I'd been reading books. This is also in the preface. I was reading books about the earth is flat, about how, you know, <laughs> is easier. And um, there was a book by Jeff Sachs about development and what we knew about what works and what doesn't. And I was like, wow, there are all these parts of the world. I just, I just, I know nothing about it. I just need to get there and start figuring, you know, just know something about them. And when I, and so that's why I started traveling mm. was to just not be so much of a clueless idiot in the classroom. If I have somebody from Burundi mm. um, or, you know, there's there was somebody in my class from South Sudan. Oh yeah. These three years ago. Uh, oh dang. Okay. Hey man, if I can ever visit, let me know. And he was like, absolutely. You mm. want to visit. So, I'm, so we're, we're hopefully going to hang out. Hello, dang. If you're watching or listening to this, hopefully uh, I get very excited these days when there's a chance to catch up with people That's nice. uh, uh, when they can, you know, introduce me to their culture. Um, a shout out to Parth Chug, who uh, this summer and DRC, who's another former student who said, man, if you ever want to visit my mind, <laughs> my family works in mining and there you go. You know, we covered mining a little bit and, and how us law touches on the supply mm. chain and mm. anything you guys read about and hear about here. Come see it sometime in person so you understand the nuances. Um, and and that was fantastic. There's, there's, I don't, you know, it's also my one climate sin is flying. I don't overconsume anything. My my <laughs> one sin in terms of consumption, my number one cost item for the year is plane tickets. I otherwise look pretty good. But my, my one carbon footprint, no kids, so you can't fault me for that. There you go. Uh, but, but yeah, but I think it's, I think it might be worth it in the sense that the stories you come back with Here's another big reason that I decided it's worth to keep going. Because I do actually ask sometimes, like, is it worth, you know, the mental and the the, the health uh, burden sometimes? Because it, it, it can be exhausting. Mm. Um, uh, the, some people point out, like, there's some risk. I mean, there's been some places you could have been killed. Mm. Um, we surprised, we're surprised you weren't. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think the reason it's worth it is that sometimes there are stories that you know you can see in the classroom or you see in a comment somewhere, made somebody cry, made somebody laugh and made them made them see reality differently. And um, you know, you said that you don't like these Mzungos with savior complexes. Uh, I'd like to think I come at it with the opposite approach. Um, I've embraced sort of the idiot outsider uh, and I've actually embraced not over-researching things. So I ask a simple dumb question mm. so somebody can, just like in a conversation like this, I don't sometimes don't want to over-prepare. So I don't assume <laughs> yeah. something is common knowledge. Because I'll just skip over a question that for a listener, yeah. a, a viewer, or a reader is critical to understanding the current reality. And so I sometimes go deliberately uh, embrace the, and I warn them I'm going to ask stupid outsider <laughs> questions. 
And it's, it's fantastic how it, it helps somebody build from the fundamentals of their reality, explain the fundamentals of how they see the world. It sometimes reveals the lesson that we can learn from as outsiders, like, oh, that's how they see reality. And then when, especially if you get to the point where the person explains, this is why I think I have challenges. I think the big point there was that the magic of sometimes these uh, interviews, and I've started to upload them on YouTube, I can tell you why, um, is when somebody not only can explain their context they live in, how they see their corner of reality, but then explain the unique challenges that they've had in trying to build something new. And they share their lessons for how to cope when something gets in your way, when somebody tells you no, when you get a setback, when you meet a tragedy, when everything goes wrong and it looks like you're a failure and, and they keep going in a situation often that is more challenging than what many of my students back in Boston can imagine. And I think that's very useful because uh, it's inevitable. You're, you're going to hit a challenge. You're going to experience failure in life. And if you can learn from something, from, from someone, if you can hear their mechanisms, how they approach yeah. a messed up reality, challenges that might involve violence or poverty or, you know, really, truly difficult existential challenges, and they still manage to create something new, that's somebody that you can learn from. And that's somebody that, you know, I'm very fortunate that people open up and share their stories and that they then trust me and, and approve of the versions that I end up sharing somewhere else. Do you feel like Babson College is doing well because of the fact actually that you or others uh, are trying to understand the world? So I, I've, I've heard that my colleagues share sometimes <laughs> are uh, like my friends, uh, maybe borderline concerned or um, don't always share my enthusiasm for, yeah, let's, let's oh, go okay. to a place that doesn't look very yeah. stable right now. <laughs> um, and thanks guys, if you're last watching or listening to this, thank you for your concern, which has come back to me. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if everybody, you know, uh, I, I, I think that here's the common thread that I've heard from students when I ask them, hey, did we live up to our reputation? You know, we're ranked number one. That's kind of high. Uh, mm -hmm. In any ranking, number one is high, right? Did we live up to that? They will say that they really relish that a lot of the faculty, one way or another, even if they don't necessarily go to Kibera, have some foot in the real world. They say that they remember those professors mm -hmm. and, and they're... I do. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think a lot of us do try to get out into reality a little bit. Okay. Um, and yeah, and I think that that has helped. You know, it's tough to do that because the world of academia is so different than what you uh, outside of academia. If you're watching or listening to this, you might imagine that, of course, a business school incentivizes what investing mm -hmm. in an early stage company, right? So you actually know what you're talking about, or maybe starting a company. Uh, maybe they even force you to make investments or start a company so that you've actually experienced the sleepless night of your company about to fail. <laughs> you know, actually, the world of academia in any school, uh, if you want to get tenure, uh, the first sort of step in your career and then associate professor, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of reward for for publishing in journals. And mm -hmm. that requires a lot of a lot of time and effort in a direction of uh, academic publishing. So any institution. I'm speaking just universally about higher education. You'd be surprised how much um, even business schools will incentivize publishing in academic journals. Um, uh, and so the extent to which 
our school or any school has faculty that get out and experience the pain of, of startup life. If you're going to teach uh, entrepreneurship, I think it's a good thing. And yes, some of our colleagues do that. Yeah. But, but plenty of them will scratch their heads when they arrive in <laughs> or where I'm going to go. You're the crazy Muzungu anyway. Yeah, yeah, so let me just... it, you know, don't accept, <laughs> accept it. <laughs> Try not, try not to irritate them too much, right? By talking. They, absolutely. So I'm going to take you from, you know, as you said, Boston to DRC. Okay. You've been there. I've never been there yet, but I could see DRC from my, from my home, from my, like my. You're paraphrasing a famous quote. Okay. Really? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, let's not go there. But actually it's true because there's all heels and you know, that that's how it works. Um, I remember just. DRC has been always this place, Zaire, formerly Zaire, where we, when I say we, I never really understood why people were hiding there, trying to do this and that. But I understood one thing is that there, there are main roles, right? I will not take you into the geopolitical problems with Rwanda and Burundi in terms of post genocide, but thanks for not asking. Thanks there. for not asking for my opinion on any. <laughs> I'll take another person there, but it is true because I remember just being like, but there's a lot of things there. Like there's oil, there's this, there's that. And, and I'm like, as a, I don't know, 13 year old, 20 year old, I'm like, but I still live in poverty, such poverty. I could say the same thing for Burundi, but good Lord, DRC is DRC, man, in terms of you as an outsider, you come from Boston, you travel there and you didn't travel like first class or whatever, or you stayed at the Marriott's. What did you see there? I think you, you see the extremes of the world. I ran this by a few people that live there to see to make sure this didn't sound unfair. But you see the extremes of the world in a in a really intense microcosm. And I think this anecdote from a walk in Kinshasa, uh, just outside of Kinshasa on the river, might might capture something. Look. It's one of the most awesome sights you'll ever see, the, the River Congo, right? Imagine from one end of your peripheral vision to the other, nothing but white water rapids. And I was, and when I got there, I was like, oh, where's the boat ride to Brazzaville? <laughs> well, it turns out there is a ferry, but it's, it's upstream. upstream. And I, the first day, you just want to get out and see the geography, the topography, where the neighborhoods, you know, what's going on. And it is just mind-blowing how huge that river and how powerful it is. And then you... As you, I'm going to take people on a little walk here. There's a place where you have, um, it could be Miami Beach in the sense that you have like couches and beds to lie on and have like table service. People bring you cocktails and a coconut or a pineapple or any kind of cocktail you want with like these white sheets around it, you know, so you got like semi-privacy on a beach and it's a you know, white sand breach and, and then you got the black sort of granite like rocks. They look black, black there and then you got the river. Mm-hmm. And all the it's all local people. There's no Mizungo, but clearly at least you know middle or upper middle class, if not you know privileged uh, people drinking their cocktails. And uh, there's a DJ, at least one DJ, and you're like, okay, I, I kind of get this. Mm-hmm. It's Miami Beach on the Congo. All right, I get this. But when you start walking, and you hear click, 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 click. And before you know it, it's, it happens very suddenly. If you're walking with, you know, two people that have decided you're, you've decided that they're your friends, yeah. And <laughs> and, and um, you know, again, you, you learn, I guess, just intuition who's who's about to mug you and who's just genuinely who's trying to hopefully sell you something later, right? It, hopefully in their mind. 
And they seem like, all right, they're somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. I'm, I'm pretty safe. And we're walking and suddenly we're surrounded by people. Click, 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 click. Mostly women and children with little metal hammers breaking up the riverbank. And, and it turns out the granite is pink inside. It's really good building material, really great granite. But you're suddenly surrounded by child labor. Well, back in Boston, that would, that, this is a no-go. This is, this is a very bad thing I'm looking at. There, it's a matter of fact that the riverbank, again, uh, for the rest of my field of vision going down downstream, you know, the, the cocktail beach is back there, maybe even more than a kilometer and a half behind us. And ahead of us for at least a kilometer, I see a whole bunch of, you know, people. Um, again, I think it was mostly kids and women, uh, sometimes with shades, just in case it got sunny over them. But breaking up the rocks as building materials. Apparently, it's used as building materials locally, and some of it is shipped to Europe. Mm. Who knew? This is what I was told. It's all hearsay. I, I'm not speaking for any of this being factually gospel truth. I'm just repeating things as my memory, if my memory is correct. And you keep going, and then you get the pirogues, I think they're called in some places. You have the dugout crews, and they can take you to an island. And you can see some people apparently do fish in there. But I hear from my companions, you know, if you, if you go out too far, you get sucked into a current, and it, can, it becomes deadly. You're, you're, you're going to be ground up. You're going to be spat out uh, out of the rapids, and you're going to be dead. Um, so, so we decided against going in the canoes, mm -hmm. took a few photographs, and then we're walking back, and... Um, there's, there's a body and, um, and it's clearly a guy that's, you know, he's not moving and he's kind of frozen with his hands up rigor mortis. He's been dead for a while. And, um, you know, you do a double take, you, you stare for a second because your, your brain is accepting. Am I seeing what I'm seeing? It's a dead body. And, the, and you can see that his clothing has been cut up. So he's been through the rapids. He looks at first like a slightly overweight person. And I'm like, should we call like the police or something? Isn't, is that what you do? Um, and the guy next to me says, those, those soldiers over there, we told about several days ago, we told them about this body. And that, that's kind of puzzles me because it, I would have assumed that in most places, uh, a wild animal or a wild feral dog would come in and start chewing uh, on, on a dead body. But um, apparently they, they didn't do anything. Apparently they, 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 they claim that they told the, the mm -hmm. soldiers in the neighborhood that there's a body here and nothing happened. I, I shared the story with some other people. They said, well, it could be yeah, a fisherman fell off a boat, died, and the family mm -hmm. just can't afford a funeral or, or, or the word hasn't gotten back. They just, the family doesn't know who to contact and nobody knows how to contact the family. And so that explains the dead body lying there. Um, and the last thing I, I realized as we walked a little bit closer to it was that, yeah, it did look like actually the, the, the overweight person, it was a result of bloating because it, it really did seem like it, it had been a few days. So the story seemed to, to check out once you, I'm not an expert, I'm not CSI, a crime scene investigator, but it's, you know, again, to an outsider idiot, just walking through, it, it seemed like what they were telling me seemed to, to check out with the reality that we were seeing. So there was a microcosm right there of the planet that we're on, yeah. um, you know, every day, right now, there are people living up, having a great time. We sometimes want to be those people, mm. but we know it's, it's just a question of where on the planet that you want to focus your attention. There, there's kids working that could be in school in theory, except I guess for their parents and for them, they don't see an alternative that, that makes more sense. I don't want to overinterpret. All I know is that that wasn't the one place that I've seen kids working. <laughs> um, and, and then you ask, you know, well, what else could they be doing? 
And then you find out more about their context, that there might not be a hospital, there might not be a school for dozens of kilometers. You start talking to other people, you know, some of the people you're talking about is world savers. Well, planes in and out of Africa are full of those. And I love to talk to those people because, you know, you get their perspective that, you know, we're going to help and we're going to make a difference. Yeah, you hope so. Um, I mean, it's been 60 years of trying to save something. I don't know what you guys have been doing for the last 50 at least. Yeah. Well, let's get back to other things I saw. And so I thought I'd start with that story because it's kind of a microcosm of, look, mm-hmm. it's not all misery. It's kind of like this planet. Uh, there's a great poem by by uh, somebody from the country where I am right now who is trying to beg the Yeti to come back to civilization, to humanity. And the poem is begging, Yeti, we're not just all about genocide and killing each other, and destroying things and exploiting each other. Really, we have like Mozart and pianos and you know, we, we sometimes do nice things. We sometimes have like a nice, a good time. We have parties here. And, and, that, and that poem hits me because, yeah, I'm glad you're laughing. It, it really summarizes the human condition. Yeah, we want to have a good time. We, we want to uh, enjoy life. But it's just, it's just there, you just look down the riverbank, you got child labor, you got exploitation, you got dead bodies because, well, worker, occupational healthy and safety standards, you know. Um, the guy's just trying to, get some fish, I think, to sell and to feed his family with, right? Um, so the, as you go around, I was in Kinshasa, I was up in the Northeast, uh, where, um, yeah, that was interesting, uh, where there's also, there's a large UN presence, and there's also apparently more than 50 armed groups in, in the beautiful national park with the active volcano, but you can't visit it now because uh, you know, there's over 50 armed groups. So um, <laughs> so that was interesting. There's a great beautiful ferry ride over that lake uh, where you can see the volcanoes from the water. You just can't go into the volcanoes. And okay. then the, the, what I learned the most from actually is a place I didn't expect to learn a lot. Um, again, Barth Chuck is the former student that I visited. Learned a lot about how his family came up. Uh, I'd love to ask you a question of, of why you think there are not more stories like this. What, what is the key limiting factor? And I've heard plenty of answers, but I'll tell you the story. I, uh, he also introduced me to people like the 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 only pilot continuously who's been running not only working as a pirate pilot flying uh, tourists which is how he makes his money but then the other things he does it's called wings of hope if you're religious or spiritual you'd love this guy he considers this his his ministry he got certified and licensed and trained as a pilot in the united states but came back to drc and does two things flies people whether it's you know mzungo Chinese, locals, if somebody needs a local flight, he's he, at, at your service, right? But the other thing he does is, is he does, you know, medevacs. So if somebody's been bitten by a snake, critically injured, uh, needs to get delivered for life-saving care, he will do that. And he, call, he calls that his calling, his ministry. I, I might have his business card here if you want to look him up later. But that is a great story um, that somebody, you know, went back to his country and calls it, it considers it his calling to yeah make a living. But then on the side, I'm going to fly this plane to save as many lives as I can. Uh, but who's paying for the flights, for example? As far as I understand, the reason that he works as a pilot flying people commercially as a business, oh. that covers his do-gooding on the side do- of life-saving. Mm. Yeah. So interesting character, right? Um, I, I need to include him in the book chapter. Uh, another okay. person was oh, these Okay, feel free to, to you know, put whatever uh, filter or screen you want on them and, and feel free to judge. But I think that their story is kind of cool. Um, these people who um, are 
for over three decades, I think it's over four decades now, uh, interfering with the wildlife trade. And they run, um, this This will have echoes of, of Tiger King for some people. Um, they are, you know, very driven for the last decades to interfere with the trade in the wild animals because, well, we could go into why it's a tragedy. It's one of the top three, what, black market activities on the planet. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge is that then they're stuck with basically a private zoo of, of rescued chimpanzees and other wonderful, awesome animals. And these are wonderful people. Jack is the acronym, J-A-C-K, if somebody wants to look them up. They are in Lubumbashi. Um, mm-hmm. And very cool story of people that are constantly squeaking by. Um, the reason that I know about the pilot and the uh, story of Jack, the animal sanctuary, and also this school, a technical school and mathematics and science school for girls started also by somebody that makes money elsewhere and then takes it back and runs this STEM school for girls. The reason I met all these people, oh, and we also visited two orphanages, um, which I guess didn't come to mind first and foremost because there are orphanages everywhere and there's they're important and I can look them up and, and if you ever want to talk to the people that run them, um, mm-hmm. uh, you could, you could you know, maybe do a story on how they managed to lead an organization through I mean, just the daily, what they live with is, um, can be heartbreaking. Um, Mm. The stories that they tell about abused and abandoned kids that they work with. Maybe that's why another reason it didn't come first to mind is that some of the stories I heard there are uh, some of the worst I've heard in in my life of of what, yeah, including sexual exploitation of, you know, toddlers, right? And then these kids are abandoned, treated like garbage by their own father and then taken into an adoption center. So I think it actually would be good to um, give them some attention. Uh, I really regret I didn't bring all the business cards of everybody I met and, and I, I could scroll through my phone now to find their contacts. But I think, look, that's part of of my experience. But then you got to remind yourself there's child exploitation and abuse everywhere. And we, you know, it's a great question. You know, why don't I go to places in the United States and shine a light on it? Or, Mm. again I, I go back to my mo which is that i teach students from around the world and i want to know the world and and i think it adds to my portfolio of, of what i can bring up in the classroom when i focus on organizations in difficult places and here i think that the challenges are so much more difficult because i don't think these places get much government support from what people are telling me and so you are really trying to do you came back to, you asked me at the beginning, what's justice? And apparently I might believe in it because there's no doubt that when you see that and and, and you smell it and, and you're there with these people that this this is not just, this is this is crazy. How, how can we tolerate this? And yes, there. And mm-hmm. and some people choose every day to work with those kids. And some, and some of the women, I remember the motivation is, well, I've lost my family or my family's grown up or my husband's left me and and I, I love being a mother and these kids don't have a mother. And so I'd rather sit here all day with a kid that can't speak or communicate. Apparently that's the level of trauma she went through. That That's that's person's decision. And um, I don't know where I'm going next with the story, but you asked about Congo and some of these, I'm, I, this is full yeah. of consciousness. I didn't, I didn't prepare. No, the, no, the, the, but but who do I thank for opening up the doors to these places? And actually, uh, I, I'll be fully candid in disclosing that they they 
they were incredibly generous hosts that made sure that I was taken care of and safe. And that's Parth Chug and his family. And I know that they are not publicity hounds and they, maybe they didn't even want me to mention their name, but that is the former student that invited me years ago when we discussed conflict minerals, mm. when we discussed artisanal mining, when we discussed the Dodd-Frank Act in the United States, which requires co uh, companies to disclose if they've uh, taken minerals from DRC and other places that are controversial. And it's fascinating to visit and then speak and get to know him and his family. And yes, I visited mines. Mm. And yes, I saw artisanal mining. I've seen the holes that go vertically and I saw the surface level hand, you know, practically with bare hands and, and, mm. and implements the, the mining. And I wouldn't have, that was totally worth it because that when you see the reality there, you, you realize that it doesn't, it's not as simple as it looks from Boston. And you realize I, I, I'm seriously thinking about some playing with the idea for that chapter of, of, of calling him sort of something between uh, the, 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 they, they were one of the most deeply spiritual families I've ever met. They pray every day. His father apparently prays mm. for forgiveness from the earth. That's what his son believes. He, he's not quite sure. So I need to fact check that, but really, I mean, these are, I, I, they pray every night with their, with the people that work for them. Uh, I, Unless they were faking it, you know, for a week straight when I was tailing him around his operations, I don't think you can fake that kind of interaction and yeah. leave you alone with the workers to tour a factory or tour the ore processing and have everybody on the same page to that extent. Even North Korean tour guides will slightly go off script with their expression, letting you know, this is what I have to tell you. Right? You can see <laughs> clips of this. I'm not the first person to comment on this. Uh, and uh, unless they have done a better job than North Korean um, uh, tour guide agency uh, management, um, there was not a single breaking with the script that, no, this family is trying to do the right thing. Everybody on this planet that has a smartphone is connected to that supply chain. They didn't rub that in my face, but I know that. And that's one of the reasons this is a lifetime goal to see where our cell phone batteries are born in the heart of Africa. And, and I think this is the biggest now I'll end with slightly, this slightly meandering tour of, of my memories of DRC on this particular date with, with this big takeaway. I think if we are going to talk about it and talk about not allowing people to buy artisanally mined ore, right? If we are going to condemn uh, a company that takes ore that's been brought to them, or not ore, but the, you know, the raw material, the dug up earth, and tell those people, go home. We're not buying what you've just dug out of the earth. I think we need to consider the alternatives that they have. And in that place where I was, you know, Parth's family helps to fund things like schools and hospitals. Why? Because they don't exist. So the alternative for that family of 13 kids, mm. okay, so they can do subsistence agriculture. I don't know if there, I don't know how far away the nearest school is, but it, there was dozens of kilometers and a, and a flight <laughs> to get to that location. And um, mm. the only schools in that area that I saw was there was a school built by the, by this family that does some of the mining. I'm not saying, look, I was there as a visitor. Plenty of people would fault what I'm saying right now that, well, you weren't there long enough to truly know what's going on. Okay. Yeah. I'm guilty of that. Maybe. But, but here's what I do know. If that was in any way reflective of the bigger reality, then it's, okay, if you're going to, are you going to be the person at the end of the day who tells a father and his five kids or seven kids, could be 10, 
Somebody told me with pride they have 13. Mm -hmm. Are you going to be the one who tells that dad, go home, I'm not giving you $5 for your bags of earth. Why? Because people in Europe and the United States don't want to know that there's child labor involved. And we're now have to report it if, if, if we do, if we are involved, and I'd rather simply not buy it. Instead, we're going to use this industrial backhoe, which apparently is legal and ethical and ISO certified. <laughs> um, so, you know, what else is that kid going to, I mean, okay, subsistence agriculture, what happens when the crop fails? Um, go to school. Well, that's easy to say when there's a school around. Um, so it, that, that reality is much more complex. And look, I'm not endorsing the, the kids work in mines instead of yeah, going to school. But, but when you're in that context, you suddenly start to realize, mm -hmm. wow. And then you start to realize that these strategically vital Tools, mines yeah. that produce yeah. these batteries, do you know that I, I think the American presence is pretty much gone because they don't want to get into trouble. Uh, according to Parth, I want to dig into this and, and find out the, the mining company's perspective on this. But according to him, that requirement to report those transparency requirements spooked all the people in his industry that might fall under those reporting guidelines. He's like, well, if you wanted the Chinese to run everything, you just got that done. Um, again, this is Parth's view. I want to mm -hmm. fact check before I sure. represent it as gospel truth. Yeah. Um, but I thought that was fascinating that by setting up a disclosure regimen, which I always was a huge, for 17 years, I've written about ESG disclosure. And I thought, this is going <laughs> to save the world, man. If we're just more transparent, all of us would try to be better in our supply chains. Yeah, but he said, no, 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 no. You guys really, you know, you've spent more time on the ground, Adam, than probably the people that actually voted on that law and maybe the people that, that helped to write it. I don't know if that's true, but if, if somebody's a staffer for a member of Congress, I apologize if that's not true. But I will assume it is the case, though. Mm -hmm. But his point was that, yeah. you know, this is why I wanted you to visit, is that when you see the reality on the ground, it's not like those of us that are involved in mining are all devils. I can say that, that I'm, I'm pretty convinced that they're not all devils. And I'm pretty convinced that uh, it's, it's not as simple as it looked to me, teaching this subject, having the title of professor, uh, mm. I, I'm a little bit less ignorant than I was before and a little bit more humble. And I would present it as more of a, a classic struggle of humans. Um, what What's the right thing to do? Do, do, you tell, do you send somebody home and say, I'm not going to buy your stuff or do you buy from it and incentivize yeah. child labor? Because when you buy it, yeah, the, the flip side is that now you've made it worth it to not send the kids to school if the school is ever built, but to have them mm. out in the dirt digging. Absolutely. I think for, for me, like sometimes I hear people have conversations about Africa and Africans. And and to be honest, sometimes I'm disgusted because there's no other word. And other times I'm like, there's a lot of ignorance that it amazes me. So I had a conversation with a friend who was telling me about the Uganda. Like, I don't know if you saw in Uganda, there's this huge gas space that like land stuff that they had and there's oil, a French oil gas and stuff and oil, you know Total which is a French company going there signing contracts and everything and for me as a Burundian I was like good for them obviously there'll still be corruption like in the US in China in whatever in Finland you know but at least it gives them the opportunity to to change the region, to create schools, to build hospitals, to you know, to change really the, the the dynamics of that region. I don't know exactly where it is. And a friend of mine, really, as you know, I think it's a climate warrior. I don't know how that we'll call yourselves, but 
He's like, no, but you, you can't do that. But he was being sincere. He's like, you can't do that because, you know, climate change. And I was like, okay, so we switched to batteries. Well, now you're back to mining. <laughs> um, I, I, like, I, I, I look, uh, those people have a point that we should be trying to get off of fossil fuels. But I think what they skip over uh, is that, okay, if you're not, let's say you stop all oil and gas tomorrow and we switch 100% to batteries. Mm-hmm. Well, now you're mining this stuff. And mining is, it's part of the same, we call it the resource curse in, in, in the academic literature that whenever Norway and maybe the Emirates are some of the few examples where um, there was a lot of wealth in terms of minerals mm-hmm. and gas and oil under the ground that people were able to extract and then somehow share in a way that drove development, not just for the elite, yeah. but that you know shared wealth with the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Almost everywhere else, it's driven conflict Mm-hmm. Um, corruption and the wealth hasn't been shared. That's maybe an overstatement. Feel free to correct me, guys, if if that's not true where you're from. But that's the stereotype. Mm-hmm. I understand. So, and, and, and 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 so to about your climate warrior friend. All right. So it it won't happen with oil and gas if if you get your way. But that now, now we're going to have the same issues with minerals. Absolutely. How do you extract that stuff and share the prosperity and the wealth? But I think for me, it's beyond even the climate change and the oil and gas. Is to say they have resources. Let, let me just give you this example of Saudi Arabia. I was there two two months ago, I think, and I remember just landing in this desert because it is a desert, to be honest, and just thinking like maybe sixty years ago there was nothing. And now there's like technology. I was going there for AI summit and I saw myself just thinking how, okay, it's a desert, but they were able to do all these things because they have the resources that they managed to manage. Basically, there was a management tool that was there. You're telling Africans, okay, you have all these things, these rich things. You Mm -hmm. can't use them because in New York, there's someone sitting in the Upper East Side telling you that, you know, Adam, come on, you should be. And I'm like, how so? Am I I crazy to think that climate warriors, at some point, you need to travel to other spaces to understand that maybe New York is not Zanzibar and Zanzibar is not L.A. Because, hello, I've been following what's happening in California. Everybody's fleeing the, the state. And for me to see you maybe seeing the reality on the ground because it's ugly. It is ugly. The child labor is ugly. I've seen my country go through famine. It's ugly. Not because they don't, there's nothing, but because they don't know how to manage, you know, the food Mm. crisis or food, whatever. And I wonder if you, you could share maybe, I don't know, ECG, I have a really good, great problem with that. But Mm. if you were telling me, go to Namibia, Okay, maybe they have to manage, they manage better and, you know, they do things better. What would you tell like a minister of, not even tourism, of energy, an African, yeah. tur- what would you, how would you share your, your research maybe? Well, I would, I'll, I think I'll answer that question. My, my, again, my first instinct would be to be humble and hear wow. reality from their perspective. If nothing else, I'm not going to, I'm not going to persuade them of anything, even if I knew what to do. I wouldn't get very far in having a conversation with that person if I didn't understand their reality. So my guess would be that I would have to listen and that I would hear about, as, as you've intimated, and as I've somewhat intimated, there's a level of hypocrisy of outsiders that want to enjoy the products that are created. We're, we're, we're part of the supply chain of a lot of the things that we hate aspects of. 
And so I think then what I could share if he said, look, is there anything that you can offer me that's, that's useful? I would say, well, okay, in no particular order from the academic research, let's start with this uncontroversial statement that, that storytelling is our, the, the superpower of our species. And credit to Yuval Harari for popularizing that. And if you want your people to, uh, to be creative, to work, and to come up with new solutions that make their lives better, your life better, the lives of everybody better, you got to give them a better story than, 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 than what we're seeing, which is, I was, just, I was just, I won't get into details, but we were just sharing with a few African entrepreneurs yesterday, whether you're Zungo or you're local, your son is in disbelief at just the not dysfunctionality of, an, of a bureaucracy mm-hmm. that apparently, geez, to, to, you know, you want to visit the country to like share stories about what you can learn but the, the whole bureaucracy seems to be set up to like prevent uh, a visit or to, to uh, you know just, so look that's the story uh, that you just encounter over and over is how yeah. dysfunctional the official bureaucracy can be and and how corrupt some people are and then you know at the end of these conversations well the official system is is hopeless so just find somebody at a tour agency who knows who to pay off so that you can come in because I mean there is no other realistic way to sometimes take care of something. Well, that's not a very good story to bring up the kids <laughs> on, right? Um, that this is the only way to function. Uh, it, we, so how do you tell a better story about what's going on? I think we need to find the stories of people that are made able to function despite those hurdles, uh, elevate them and say, look, you can do that too. I mean, ultimately, what is culture and, and why do people in some places uh, maybe not vie for an easy job where I work for a ministry and I collect my, my bribes. Uh, why do they instead want to be like, you know, and some people hate him now, some people love him, uh, you know, the, the Elon Musk fantasy. That, that his story up until this year where he's really... <laughs> uh, I'm cheering for the guy. I don't know for you, but I'm cheering I, I thought for you the might, guy. I thought you might be. Um, <laughs> Plus he's South African, so I'm cheering African... The point, is, the point is, everywhere I've gone, gone on the planet, people are like, his example is what all these kids in this grade school, all the motivated ones want to start a company. They're learning technology. They're learning how to program. They, you know, they want to be the next person to come up with an awesome new technology and awesome uh, company. And so I would tell that minister, um, look, look, look what an example can do to kids, that, that example of storytelling. Another example of storytelling where you can find out what's not going right and, and fix it so it works better so that you can actually leave a legacy that you can be proud of. I mean, don't you want that? I might try to push that button with somebody yeah. who's used to maybe a system that doesn't reward uh, innovation and maybe a system that, you know, you throw up your hands after a while and say, screw it, it's all corrupt. I'll just, yeah. I'll just, I'll just keep going with the system as it is, right? Mm. I, w- I would... It seems like a lot of people later in their lives do get a sense of, well, what am I leaving behind? What will my kids or my grandkids know about me? And then it starts to matter your legacy. Again, a story. What what are the stories people will tell about me? I might try to push that button and say, maybe you want to start measuring things and to show the progress and the improvements that you've made, that you were able to do what you're supposed to do in a way that was making more lives better than than, than yeah. making lives worse. Don't, don't you want to, don't you want to be able for your grandkids to remember you that way instead of just another, nah, he was just a normal minister. <laughs> I mean, is that, is that what you want on your tombstone? Let this me give normal? you then, 
let me I think, use I think this I example. Like, yeah, I like, <laughs> when I've asked myself, all right, if I'm going to die, if this plane's about to crash, can I die a happy man? I honestly, for several yeah. years now, I've thought, eh, shout out to Jake Valancourt. You're one of the first people that, 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 that I had this reflection about. You know, I didn't create a company that, that improved the lives of, of possibly millions, but I was a teacher of somebody that did. And it, it, he's told uh, classes when he's come back to visit that maybe I, you know, helped uh, share a few ideas, a few examples that got him thinking that, that in a way that led eventually him to start, start a company. Mm. And, and that story has been repeated with a, several students that, that jump to mind when I have those reflections that I can die because, you know, that I left the campsite a little bit better than I found it because my students did something cool. And so I would push that button with a minister or any other gatekeeper that has power, uh, that has resources, is I would ask them, what kind of a story um, do you want people telling about you? What kind of a story excites you? What, what, what kind of reputation, what makes you happy when people mention your country? What do you want them to think of? Do you, do you, do you want them to think of status quo? Or do you want, it doesn't, doesn't everybody sort of get excited at the idea that, oh, somebody actually wrote a good news piece on, on this story from my country and this person's actually solving problems. Isn't that, doesn't that make you proud? Don't you want to be a proud member of X community? Adam, let me, let me burst your bubble. Some people really do not care. <laughs> they really don't. But speaking about storytelling, because it's a really beautiful segue, uh, yeah. I'm going to make, you know, yeah. I'm blowing my own horn. Let me give you Rhonda. I'm not Rondis. Uh I've never been there. I took out. Not yet, hopefully this year, 2023. But I love the storytelling. I was six in 94. I've seen some, you know, obviously some details of the genocide. I uh, Burundian genocide as well was quite similar. And I see the, those two countries having a so, like a, such a different path. There's an amazing... I, I don't want to call myself a random, but I think maybe in five years, if people really push, you know, <laughs> if they're going this way, I'll maybe, you know, start speaking Randy's because it's funny. They're doing really well. All of this to say, there was a vision 20 years ago or maybe 25 years ago that was called 2020, Vision 2020. And I remember hearing that when I was home and we'd be laughing a little bit. It's like, oh my gosh, just so far. We will, you know, there will be, this will be the end times basically. Now you hear some countries talking about Vision 2030. This is Saudi Arabia. But I'm older now. I'm not 10. And I understand the power now, as you said, of storytelling and to put the whole nation on one track and be like, guys, we're, you know, this is our past. This is ugly. As you said, you're in Poland, you know, Auschwitz and Dachau. Those are the areas, basically, right? And Just remember, it was the... I, I hate I hate to point the finger, but it wasn't uh, it was the Germans that built them. I know, I, know. I, I understand. <laughs> no, I mean I, I studied Poland my last year of high school, and I know, yeah, yeah, Poland had to suffer the the consequences of basically yeah. of the whole uh, European whatever. The Germans and the Russians, yeah, and and if you read the book Bloodlands, you find out that it's not just Russians and Germans that this this part of the world. You know, we, I, we were joking together that we have we share more uh, as Slavic nations with African nations than people might guess. Um, first of all, the, the, the inner Slavic tribe feuding, uh, as bloody, uh, yeah, literally the 20s and 30s, uh, there were people macheting each other. It's not just Rwanda. No, Rwanda two decades and it was happening here between Ukrainians and Poles that are now allies. 
So uh, that was one. And the other thing is that we can be very jealous of each other. So <laughs> maybe we are not so different. The We're not so different at all. No, no, no. But it's funny because you get to realize like the, the same problems they have in one region of the world, something similar is happening in, you know, I will say Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. I don't know. I'm just giving up names like that because it's similar. Croatia and Serbia. Good Lord. Let's not go there. Those not are the things we're ago. like. Yeah. Oh, not long ago, I was. I mean, I was alive, man. Like, but the, all this to say that you have this president, you have this government that that decided to do something. No. Um, no matter whatever the PR, some people like love actually uh, Kagame. Some people hate him, but he's on a path. He's on his own path. Talking about entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. did you go to Rwanda? I did. What did you see there, as a Muzungu? So, uh, so interesting. First of all, I got to give props to the people that uh, invited me, Uh, Mm -hmm. starting with Dr. Wilgina Glover. She works with people, including Rex, Dr. Rex there at the University of Global Health Equity in northern Rwanda. And they had a hackathon with uh, young adults from around Africa. There's somebody, I'm pretty sure from Ghana, that I'll never forget. We shared a lot of laughs. Uh, my, uh, we have a student who's on scholarship there from Rwanda who was there in Rwanda with us. And there were people basically from around the continent. And, and the, the motivation, this is a medical school and also a public health school. So people that are hopefully going to go back to health ministries, people that are going to work in hospitals as doctors. It's a... Uh, the fantasy, the vision of the founder, Dr. Paul Farmer, was that there would be these sort of free medical and schools of public health all around the world. And one of the reasons that they chose Rwanda is the governance. I hope I'm getting the, the facts right. Again, somebody can double check some of this. But Dr. Paul Farmer, I met once in the 90s at a conference uh, that, that we organized and um, everything I heard about him or everything that I watched, uh, saw personally, uh, checked out that he, he was one intense person who knew how to share his vision as to, to your point about sharing visions and his vision, people told him, you know, you're going to best be able to demonstrate and realize there, um, especially given the, what the country went through, it'll be a great story that you built this free, uh, school of public health and medicine, uh, that maybe is a model that can be replicated. So there you go. That that was the context in which I came to know the, the reason I got invited there was to help um, people in a weekend of identifying things that are pain points in African medical care and health administration, whether it's record keeping, whether it's getting life-saving medicines. And, and it's, the funny thing is some of the people I might be interviewing are have startups that, that do things like verify the quality of medicines and the authenticity of, of the source. Getting back to the hackathon, the whole point of the hackathon was to spend time identifying the problems and the pains that they all knew and live with, ideating crazy ideas of how are we going to solve this that could actually lead to a business. And then they spent the remainder of the weekend actually filling in some of the details. You know, how would we start this company? How could we scale it? How could you actually develop um, a company that solved a problem um, in the space of public health and medicine? In Africa. So I did that as a non-doctor and as a non-specialist in Africa, but as somebody who wrote a book with a great title, Extreme Entrepreneurship, and there were some stories from Africa, so I could share some of them. And and again, um, it's incredible how much if you come to a situation with some humility yeah. 
um, and uh, good intent and sharing other people's good stories, how much people value that and are able to like musicians sort of riff off whatever you're putting out there. And they had a, I was impressed with what they did. Anybody who's watching or listening to this who took part, uh, thanks. We'll see if any of them, uh, some of the best ideas actually were graduated into an incubator. They're going to try to help the three or five best ideas uh, sort of germinate over the spring and see if they can lead to an actual uh, startup. Um, who knows? It has a very high failure rate, but at least they will have the experience of trying to think through building a new business. And that's the whole point of the exercise. It's also great networking just to you know, make friends from across the continent, make, make friends with people that are not ready to give up and throw up their hands and say, screw it. I don't care. The system's not changing. I'm just going to find my comfort zone and stay in it until I die. Uh, no, those are people who are willing to somehow get themselves over to Rwanda, show up at this event and are eager to, to do something different and new. Yeah. And guys, if any of you are listening or watching this, keep it up. Um, they were they were an inspiration. So that's how I got to know Ghana, uh, Ghana, Rwanda. Now, outside of that, I did try to go running out away from the campus and into the villages. And I was in the south of the country and I was up in the north. Uh, and I was befriended by two people whose names is, are escaping me. But as happens when you're on the road and alone, it, it's funny how you you look and other people look if they're in need of, we need somebody else in our group to feel safe. <laughs> there are two people who had never traveled before okay. at all. And they, they ventured out of Kigali, this lovely uh, two young adults. They claim not to yet be in a relationship, but you know, uh, they, they were two very close male and female, mm -hmm. <laughs> very proper, very religious. So I believe them that they were not yet uh -huh, boyfriend, okay. girlfriend, but Guys, if you're watching this, I'm, I'm, defend, I'm protecting your honor here. Uh, but they, 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 were, they were, for the first time in their lives on the road, traveling to the south of Rwanda. And they were like, uh, you know, it was a campfire at this place where people were staying. And there's somebody from Eritrea there, of all places. And I remember them saying, what's your story? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? You know, the only white person here. <laughs> it's all African tourists here. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I know I need to fly out in a few days, but, I, you know, there's some, there's that lake up there. And I've seen it from the Congo side. They're like, wait, you saw it from the Congo side? I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I have a former student there. I'm older, so I have friends in crazy places, you know. And they were like, man, where, you're going to the lake? Wow, we've never been there. And I'm like, oh, but I thought you said you were from Kigali. And they're like, yeah, but this is our first trip ever outside of Kigali. I'm like, well, if you want to join me, man, I, I mean, you know, let's. I'm all right. So basically one of my memories is being with the, this young, young man and woman. And we had now you're, you're triggering memories because I, I want to bring something that is authentic and, and not just from a hackathon or running into a village, which anybody can do if you're at, you know, on a campus, we decided, well, we had no plan, right? We just knew that we had about 24 hours to get up to the lake because the lake is cool. And it's like the Miami beach of Rwanda, right? Although I hear a lot of Rwandans, you told me this, run to Burundi, that that's their Miami Beach. That's where they go. Oh, yes, lose. they do. That's, that, that they do. I mean, all the Rwandans who yeah. are listening, yeah. they so know. Yeah, so Rwandans, they if you're listening, I, I, I don't need to, to sell short your, your wonderful resorts where you guys go wild um, <laughs> on, on that coast in, in Burundi. We were, we were there and um, incredible to see that the trees that used to be on the beach are now <laughs> in the lake. Um, I mean, that's called uh, space management, real estate. 
you know, if it's the same thing is happening in Corsica, by the way, you know, just houses are just falling out, um, in the sea were, and you're like, Hey, they're, well, they're telling me that yeah. the lake is much higher than it used to be. Like, yeah, it's getting, uh, yeah, because in the seventies, they told me in the seventies or yeah, seventies, eighties, they, they told them don't go there. They're like, no, it's cool. Let's, you know, build neighborhoods all over the place. Uh, and too close. because the, the, the water basically is coming, is coming back. Okay. You know, it's not like, yeah, it's crazy because, I mean, when my parents build their houses, that's why we're kind of on the hill. Uh, the lake was so close than it is now. So what you saw now is kind of like coming back to their former huh. state, okay. I guess. Something like okay. that. So it's crazy. So there's like new neighborhoods that really was recreated. Yeah. And I guess the people who were in charge of the, I don't know, landscape or whatever, didn't understand the, the climate change. Back, back. So I want to anyway. go back to the, this story because I think it, it might make people laugh if you are Rwandan or African and it might be heartwarming and it's uh-huh. funny the extent to which, God, where are my memories? We, we basically took these local buses where it was just tight. We were packed in there. <laughs> and this is, this is like, there are still, there's still people now wearing like full on COVID gear, right? If you're in, in an international airport, and there's some of the people walking around in surgical suits, you know, those white suits with the mask yeah. and the ventilators. And, and you are cheek by jowl. I mean, you cannot get closer to a human without without oh without God. being in a marital uh, relationship. Um, <laughs> we were just crammed in there like sardines. And and then I remember uh, just crazy stuff happening where, well, the bus that we were supposed to transfer to left because the bus driver didn't make clear that no you have to get off of this bus and onto the next bus so here we are halfway down uh, up the country and these two local people who'd never traveled outside of their city and me the mzungo are like we're looking at each other like do you know what to do i'm like you're looking at me you're from this country they're like yeah but you're the one who travels we're we don't travel so i always that was hilarious to have uh rwandans ask me for like do you know what to do i'm like you knew what to do. <laughs> I, the reason I was so excited that you're joining me is that you're in London. You speak the languages. Oh my God. You know, I, oh my I'm God. just an idiot who gets lucky. And we somehow managed, to their credit, to get into a car that subsequently stopped being able to go up hills. It just stopped. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. And, and we, we were like, we just cannot believe this. Like, there, there were so many things that went wrong. Between... <laughs> The bus not picking us up. The hospital, <laughs> there was, oh, there was a fight between various people trying to um, uh, hustle rides for us. So okay, yeah. I, I so, see. You. So yeah. we be quickly became the clientele, the territory of certain hustlers at bus yeah. stops, and they they were they almost came to blows. I don't think anybody actually hit anybody oh, yeah. else, but uh, almost oh yeah, there. we were almost there. I mean the. the yelling was was hardcore and you know it's tough it's tough to know you know like which which hustler is the better hustler right <laughs> who will drop which, you at the lake which, which the car is more likely to make it up the hills um this one stuck we, we were very <laughs> it was such a drama this car kept stalling kept stalling and then finally at a point furthest away from any other habitation it finally gave out on the longest uh-huh. uphill stretch and like, again we're looking at each other do you know what to do no, no. <laughs> and it's now becoming dusk, and uh, some guy stopped and gave us a ride. and And here's another lesson: wherever you go, no matter how 
much you can't believe your bad luck. There's it always something always seems to click at the last minute. This guy was like communicative, safe, didn't want to take advantage of us. I think he actually, mm. um, you know, he didn't collect a commission. <laughs> he wasn't trying to sell us on a hotel, <laughs> but he got, yeah. uh, helped us get to a place and uh, really looked out for us. And uh, I think that's one of the benefits of doing something like that, a road trip, whether you're a local making your first excursion, seeing your own country, or whether you're Mazungo uh, dropping yourself somewhere else is, mm. yeah, you see how uh, the differences, uh, and mm. then you see the commonality. And at the end of the day, um, you realize, uh, you realize that the, the common threads and that there's very rarely is everybody bad. And this is one of the funny things is so many people, when I write, even when I'm here in Europe, they write, oh my God, take care of yourself. I hope you're okay. I literally got an evacuation <laughs> offer once here in Warsaw. Uh, somebody said, I hear there's civil unrest. Do you need help getting out? And I, I said, oh, you mean the protest, the anti-government protest over there? They're just, that's called like a democracy. It's it's not a bad thing to protest as long as it doesn't turn violent and you're not trying to overthrow the government, yeah. right? That's like within bounds. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that's, we're, we're mm. here having a beer with friends on a Sunday. Like, yeah. this is not civil unrest. <laughs> this is a protest. Wow. Uh, so my point here is that that people even express concern about being in Europe. Mm. I won't even tell you what they think when they say you're in Africa. Oh my God. Oh, you're going to, yeah. you're going to get killed. Yeah. And the funny thing is you go to these <laughs> yeah. places and, and when candidly you, you talk for long enough and they're like, can you explain why you guys are keep shooting each other in the United States? It seems kind of scary. And I'm like, yeah, I agree with you. And the irony is we don't, we, yeah. we're beginning to finally get it because it's become such a phenomenon. But, but to quote somebody from the ISIS front in 2016 in Iraq, um, I said, you know, some people say that this is crazy to be here. Um, what do you say to that? And they said, crazy to be here. <laughs> Bro, no, no, no. I keep my head in a swivel looking for threat when I'm in New Jersey for the holidays in a shopping mall. That's where I'm <laughs> some random shooter is going to blow my head off. When I'm here on the ISIS front, no, we know there are people over there that want to kill us. And then we have people on the front here and nothing ever happens here. You know, yeah. If you want to cross the front, uh, that, that's that's a bad idea. Sure. But um, yeah. I keep hearing that in different parts of the world that um, you know, uh, once you're there, it's not as scary as from outside. And sure. uh, I, I hope that none of this has rubbed anybody the wrong way. But I think that the common humanity at the end of a day, even a day where it seems like this is just a day full of bad decisions and bad luck, there, there's always seems mm. to be uh, moments of common humanity where somebody just sees a fellow human is like, I'm going to change this story today for this, these people and <laughs> give it a happy ending rather than... Um, I'm into that. That's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it happens. I, mean, I hate if that sounds naive and, and super happy and oh, that only happens to Mizungo well, because we treat them better. Perhaps, uh, depending maybe. on spaces. Yeah, depending on spaces. Some spaces you could have said, mm, I'd rather be black. <laughs> I'd rather be black and not be around, to be honest. As, 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 as many times as they are likely to exploit you and squeeze you for an extra few hundred dollars it's at okay. the airport and, and say, uh, you know, <laughs> you're just as likely to get, so that whether you get exploited or, or, or whether you get privileged, exactly. it's, it's, it's a, right? and you got to have a sense of humor. You can learn a lot uh, from people that you're traveling with. Like, how are you going to deal with this? They see you as white. They think they can shake you down for a few hundred bucks. Are you going to roll with that or are you going to have a, are you going to have a temper Absolutely. Temper? 
you know, get used you to get, it. Get, um, I mean, that's life. That's part of life. Life's not fair for them in a lot of ways. Absolutely. This is the moment where this is the moment that you get to experience <laughs> some injustice. In, you know. One way or then, the other. And then, later, and then later somebody decides to treat you maybe better than a logo. Who knows? Absolutely. And that's the beauty anyway. of Africa. You have everything in everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anyway. I come back to the Congo story. Everything in microcosm. Absolutely. All the that's that, although the body part is really extreme, I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm going to ask you about Burundi. But before that, I want to ask no, two parts. You went to Burundi for like 48 hours or maybe three days at max. <laughs> two, three days, yeah. Three days. What did you see there? So thank you, because I, I hung out with your friend or your friend of a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, and we we tried to get over to where there's the national park up, up, up on the other side of the river. We, we, we did. They did try to shake us down for money. <laughs> um, the, the guards at the bridge alleged that we were out in the right place. And, and that, uh, that we had to pay some kind of a fee to cross the bridge. And we, we just said, no, no, it's all good. We, we, we just stuck by our mm. metaphorical guns. We stopped, we did not have guns, but we, we, um, we just said, no, um, we, we, um, talked a bit about business and what I learned, it was really interesting. Uh, the extent to which they taught me, look, I'm happy to tell you all about my business. I'm happy to tell, talk to you about my challenges you know, and how this person at this place that we're hanging out, how they started their business. And then we talked with that person, learned a whole lot about their lives and how they set up their companies, how they went abroad and came back, how they think there are more opportunities mm -hmm. here in Burundi, meaning um, they, they fell into that camp of people that say, yeah, there's plenty of things wrong. But the fact that there's plenty of things wrong and so many things not done mm -hmm. mean there's a bigger opportunity. Uh, the United States, I think the quote was, it seems boring. Yeah, because uh, in almost every market I can think of, it's dominated by big players, and it's, mm. it's difficult to 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 grow. And here, there's there's a lot of unmet needs for all kinds of things. And if you can just not not irritate anybody, yeah. and you smoothly manage to meet a market need, um, there's more opportunity for growth with less uh, embedded competition. It's a less mature market. I hope I'm paraphrasing correctly. The other thing that I'll never forget, I said, man, this is so great. And you gave me permission to record our interview. Can I put this on my YouTube channel? Because, you know, people have been telling me for years I should put this, these conversations on YouTube. And he goes, no. I'm like, well, you, you told me I could record it. He goes, yeah, but I'm, look, it, we need to explain something here. Um, there's jealousy and, and we don't want people jealous. So when things are going right, when you've figured out something, we prefer not to talk about it because somebody could get jealous. You know, somebody could say, well, why don't I have that? Why don't you give me some of what you have? And, and then that doesn't help me. That means I can't deliver what I'm delivering to my customers. That means I might get something taken away from me or, or what I'm doing interfered with. I would just prefer to stay under the radar. Here's the funny thing. The other person I've heard that from lately is in Europe. <laughs> and, and I've heard that from a former student in the United States. So it's not that unusual that in some situations, I don't want to call this just an African problem or a Burundian problem, but that was one of the places where somebody highlighted it uh, for me very starkly and said that you will encounter this and you should err on the side of being discreet and do what you're doing. Ask a lot of questions. You should learn, you should share our stories. But you don't need to put it all online and over publicize it because, you know, 
Well, to take the edge off of it and make it sound less accusatory, or again, uh, make it sound less like it's a Burundi thing, um, I shared with you the joke, uh, again, about, about us Slavic tribes here in the middle of Europe and in Eastern Europe, um, that the joke is, and you can insert here Polish, Ukrainian, or Russian, because, you know, although although some of us are killing each other in this part of the world, uh, we, we you know, Slavic tribes, right? And, and I think every one of, of the Slavic nations has a, a variation of this joke. What does it, what does, I'll, I'll laugh at my own nation. Um, what, what does a Polish farmer uh, say when he finds out his neighbor has a new awesome cow? Uh-huh. Oh, I hope, I, I, do, does he fall to his knees or she and, and pray, oh, I hope I get my awesome new cow? I hope I find a cow or buy a cow. No, the joke is, damn it. I hope my neighbor's cow dies. <laughs> if I, I hope I haven't offended. I don't know why I'm family. laughing because it's not uh, really it, funny. It's sad. <laughs> no, to me it's funny because I see it in myself. I mean, look, I'm an academic with the lowest stakes possible. Where, where like, but down the hall, if somebody is praised more than me, or 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 uh, you know has a has a, a glory uh, bestowed upon them, some praise at a meeting, I get jealous. I'm like. Ah, Where's my praise? Oh my um, so I think it's, it could be a universal human thing. Hey, colleagues, by the way, there, I just confessed to myself. I'm <laughs> jealous when, when other people ask in the limelight of praise. My point is this, is that humans are a jealous, weird, barely evolved monkey. <laughs> and uh, that, that goes for all of us. And that goes for me. And what he said about people being jealous, don't don't publicize what I'm doing. Please keep it under the radio. You don't, Adam, you don't understand. I really could interfere more than you imagine. Uh, that was uh, that was another takeaway of, of the time in Burundi. So yeah, it was two, three days. It was not a long time. And it's thanks to you, by the way, that I got introduced to friends and then friends of friends and then the owner of the place where we were hanging out. But you can still learn a lot and and, and learn a lot about the natural, national, natural environment in the sense that, well, you know, the signs warning about, you know, watch out for hippos. Uh, <laughs> for real. A lot of them. And the other thing I'll never forget is the, the conversation of why is that tree out there that so far in the lake? Is it because, you know, is it more rain or <laughs> damn this? This is, this is like one of the major lakes. This couldn't be a new rail, right? Um, but you can still learn a lot about what's going on in the reality and hear their theories about why are there suddenly, you know, why is the water, why is the shoreline somewhere else? Uh, you can experience the getting shaken down by guards at the bridge. Hello, guards, if you're listening to this. And, and yeah, and the other thing is that the, the resorts, you're absolutely right. They are very nice. They have pools and you, you, you know, you got, it, it wasn't that wild while we were there, but I can believe that mm -hmm. if you're there on the right weekend, you're right, that that could be the Miami beach for Rwandans looking to, to let down their hair uh, outside of their own boundaries and stay, up a, bit, stay up a bit later than usual. Because <laughs> um, we Burundians know how to party. Um, voilà. So, voilà. so anyways, people. thank you for introducing <laughs> yeah. me. And, and, those, and, those, and those are some of the, the big reflections that they were, they were bullish on their future. They came back when they were somewhere else. They thought there were a lot of opportunity to stay under the radar because they don't, you don't know the extent of the jealousy and the, the, the power that some people have to act on that jealousy to interfere with what you're doing. So maybe that maybe if, feel free to get back to me if you're listening to this and you want to correct me or give me feedback or build on that, feel free to. It's just a good insight to have that, Mm -hmm. there's there's some context where you just discretion is prized absolutely and plus it's i think it's part of that oh burundian culture is, at the same time it's not really showy showy it's not showing off it's not really who we are but then adding to the maybe to the atmosphere or whatever political environment and economic environment as well it's it could be tricky 
let's move on to this question, this last question for you, because everything is about opportunities in uh, Africa, be it Asia as well. You know, uh, what is what do you see? How do you see tech playing a role in Africa? In really, you know, playing a huge role for me. It's it's my I'm. I'm so yeah. I'm so happy that I get to cover African tech at some point, mm -hmm. but I'm happy to see things happening in Nigeria, things happening in uh, Kenya, you know, Morocco, South Africa, and I know that technology will play a role in Burundi at the same time. Mm -hmm. For you who've been on the ground, beat you, you can apply it on mining. You can apply it in I don't know cotton or coffee. Uh, how do you see it play? Yeah, in the next five ten years, which is pretty much tomorrow. Yeah, so I'm gonna pair it. A lot of conventional wisdom that keeps getting repeated, but seems to check out that Africa mm -hmm. is leapfrogging in some contexts, to some extent, some percentage of the population, right? Um, like everywhere else, mm -hmm. uh, any kind of a trend uh, leaves out big portions of society. But the, the, the famous example is mobile payments that you guys skipped over a whole phase of banking. Uh, I come back to the United States and banking seems to be behind Europe and it seems in some ways to be behind or it was behind in terms of using your mobile phone as your bank. So there's the example of leapfrogging that um, uh, if you, it's kind of consistent with what your uh, acquaintances in Burundi had to share, that if you're in a situation where basic needs are not met, there's more opportunities. And there's also more opportunity to skip the current in, uh, incumbent phase of technology and institutions that are the norm in developed Asia, Europe, and the United States and go straight to generation 2.0. Like, Why do you need a physical bank? Why not just why not make your mobile phone your bank? Uh, I want to mention two stories from Africa that, that were in my first book. And I, I hope I'm not forgetting any others. But there's two that jump to mind that build on a theme that this is going to be one of the first places that I, 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 I bang on this drum and I don't think it'll be the last because it hit me when I was in it was in Nepal. But there's a story that I've seen with parallels in Africa. And that is that big tech and foreign tech can fail in the local context. Why? Because the high tech solution um, sometimes isn't the right one. And sometimes the big institution isn't the right one to deliver a service. The specific example, Raj of airlift technologies in Nepal. There were two catastrophes that led to his company doing what it does. And, now I'm gonna, and then I'm going to draw parallels to two stories from Africa. And from what I'm seeing of the people that I'm finding now that I'll be visiting in early 2023, they follow this sort of a parallel, there's a parallel theme going on. So here's the story of Raj of Airlift. There's a massive earthquake, thousands of people killed. Beautiful, centuries old structures crumbling and about to collapse, if not already destroyed. So both in terms of human life and cultural loss, this, this is a tragedy, the, the Kathmandu earthquake of several years ago. And he... You know, he had some training in China with uh, air, you know, some kind of aeronautics. He worked for an airline, I think. But he was, he was a passionate hobbyist with drones. He bought off the shelf for $2,500 was his total investment, which is a lot for some people. But for others, it's not that much. It's, it's what you might call a upper middle class, middle class kind of within bounds investment for some economies. Mm -hmm. The point, it was an off the shelf drone. This is not satellite technology. This was not high tech from Google or Apple. What he started doing is he, he installed a, a software and then started to 3D map, figure out how to 3D map structures that were crumbling, collapsed, or about to collapse. And then he for free started giving it to people that were trying to restore the buildings. 
And they started being so desirous to get more of this from him that he, they started paying him. And he realized, I can have a business. Mm. So he started Airlift. Then the pandemic hit and he was stuck at home and he was hearing about people dying, not just because they got sick, but because an ambulance or a doctor couldn't get to them fast enough. Why? Because they were relying on big high-tech navigation. Big high-tech navigation, some, some of it is satellite-based, some of it in the developed world, sorry to use that term, but what, you know, whatever term you want to use. We see in Europe and the United States, Google with those cameras on the car, driving through streets and doing mapping using the car and supplementing whatever satellite images they have. Can't man do, you can't get a car down some of those alleyways and they don't send cars. And the satellites, as awesome as they are, don't differentiate sometimes down into narrow winding alleyways. Basically big high-tech navigation platforms Sorry to overstate this, Google, Apple, this is not meant to be disparaging, but people died because they were relying on them and then they got lost. They were told that you can go down a one-way street and you can't, it's the, it's the wrong way. Or the street is not really the alley you think you're on. If you are familiar at all, if you've ever used navigation and it's screwed up, you can kind of relate to this, but that problem is magnified in a slum or in a dense neighborhood of a developing world city. And I'm sure that actually, now that I think about it, from what I've seen of some of them, this must have been repeated in the African context. It must have been somewhere repeated that if you're relying on big high tech, your navigation must have failed at some point for some critical first responders. So he was hearing about people dying unnecessarily. And he thought, I could develop a better app than that. So he literally took his drone and started mapping the alleyways of Kathmandu and developed a map called, uh, an app called Gali Maps, G-A-L-L-I. He got lucky, as sometimes we do with social media. It went viral overnight, got thousands of downloads in the beta version. And now that's an example I can't wait to tell in my book of somebody that did not adopt a big, high-tech, expensive, satellite-based approach. It's not Google. It's not Apple. It's not Elon. Love him or hate him. This is Raj in Kathmandu with $2,500 built a better app that saves lives. And here's the other thing that but the, the, if this was a, a movie, there was some foreshadowing of this problem. When I was in uh, the south of Poland this summer, I looked at a map and I showed it to someone. I said, um, this is BS. This is, this is a lie. Google says we can drive to this mountaintop. I was up there. A, a goat, a goat can barely walk up that. You know, it, it, you can do it like this. <laughs> it's not drivable. No, yeah. no car can go up there. And this was Google. Google was lying. It was had bad information for um, in Europe. So, so, so it, it fails whether you're in the mountains. It can fail when you're in dense uh, winding alleys of a slum or, a, or just a, a city with dense alleyways. So the, the term I want to um, bring into the limelight a little bit, because I haven't seen a pop mainstream business article talk about this, is the idea of medium tech. And if you want to help me, you know, write an article um, or, or, you know, let's get it out into the, uh, the African sphere of aware awareness, because I think the theme is being echoed, this idea of medium tech. Now I'm going to mention the two stories in my book that echo the same idea. Uh, Anka Madagascar, A-N-K-A in Madagascar. These stats might have changed, but I don't think they've changed much. Over 90% of the nation is not on an electric power grid. It's over 95% when you're outside of the city. Yeah. Oh, oh electrification does not exist uh, for a majority of Malagasy. It might be the first or the second, but max the third. They think that they're the first or the second. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. 
the folks at Alka Madagascar also I'll share this recording with them. As of pre-pandemic, they were the first to realize, and I love teaching this case because I, I taught it with um, to some uh, elementary school kids uh, in of all places, the Emirates, and they they found this. They actually thought of of the solution when I presented it. So kids can think of these solutions. You just need to playfully set it up like, hey, well, what would you do if you want to set up a little mini electric grid with solar panels and sell the power for like a dollar a week, but people aren't even making a dollar a week? What do you do? Well, do you have a guess, by the way? Do you want, do you want to play this game or should I go straight? To the go, go straight, but I'll say you can't give that for free because we'll be... I don't know. For for a while, you could. You can always give somebody a. For, I mean, for a loan. Yeah. A loan, yeah. There you go. Yeah, a loan, yeah. An agreement where you get the first few months free. But what would you help them do if they don't have money to pay you? What's one alternative other than doing relying on donors to run a charity, which is precarious, right? You can help the local villagers to make more money to so they, among other things, they can pay for your electricity. Basically, they realize they need, to turn, okay. they need to turn the area under the solar panels into an incubator. And why does this make sense? Because in those villages, and I saw this in my own eyes, you know, you're going on a donkey pulled cart to the nearest city to buy essential things. If you cut down a tree and you're the local carpenter and you want to make something, furniture or, or planks to build somebody's house, you have to take that log on a cart and take it to the nearest city to have it milled. And then that, that somebody else with the mill in the city is getting your money, whatever you're able to, to get. And then you're bringing the planks back to the village and now you're using them. If you're a farmer, you bring stuff to the city sometimes to sell or to process. And the craziest thing is that you sometimes buy uh, cheap, fashionable sometimes maybe, um, nutrient low or free, uh, imported rice, white rice. It does not have a lot of nutrients. It's not local. It's not healthy. It leads to a generation uh, with mental and physical deterioration, right? Because they grow up with uh, their bellies full of nutrient-poor food. And you're buying that stuff in the city and bring back to your village where you ha sometimes have cassava. This is, you know, you don't blame any particular individual in that place. And correct me if I'm wrong, this is just an outsider, Mzungo dropping in and, and reporting what he saw and what was explained to him. But what we saw there, as explained by Malagasy, yeah, there were some foreign partners, you know, these people that basically moved nine years ago and never left. But a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people explaining the reality were Malagasy. And they were like, oh, this is just the reality that like the health clinic, this is the part that blew my mind. I'm the kind of person that if there's a health clinic, I'll walk in. And if nobody stops me, I'm going to open that fridge and look what's in the fridge. Well, there are boxes with, with there are boxes with names of medicine. I open the box. Do you think there's anything inside? Ooh, tough. Nope. And if there yeah. was, Ooh. do you think the refrigerator was turned on? So basically, you have this totemic, symbolic refrigerator with boxes, and that's the place where the women in the village give birth. Or if you break a leg, that's where you're getting treated. And uh, you know, look, whether there's bats nesting might or might not contribute to whether you get well or die. But if there's not enough power for enough basic medicine or to operate at night and yeah, they have individual solar powders and panels and they can power a battery yeah. and they can power up their, their phones. Like a lot of places in the world, you'll be surprised where people have smartphones, right? The ends of the world, you'll have a smartphone. But 
But here's the point is that a little mini grid does, it provides not only life-saving electricity, but here's the other thing. If you've built an incubator under the, your mini grid, you can bring all that economic activity back. You can help somebody process their cassava into cassava flour and have locally grown food. So that economic value stays in the village, right? That, that nutrient rich food starts to feed the kids for more meals of the day. The guy who, you know, we maybe want to say that, well, maybe they shouldn't cut down trees. Well, that mm. until there's a substitute building material, they, they build some things from wood. That person now is now milling the wood possibly in that village if you have power to help run a saw. The, the woman with a hand-cranked sewing machine mm. might be able to fix 10 shirts that day instead of two. That's the example of some of the things that was explained and that I saw with my own eyes. Um, so look, lovely village mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, clear air, clean water. I, I remember the, the little cafe, you know, you can breakfast for everybody for $2 yeah. uh, with these little uh, pastries and the coffee. And it, this is not a bad place, but there's thing, some things that are obviously not optimal for the health and the happiness and the prosperity of people there. And again, the solution was not high-tech. Solar panels are not yeah. high-tech. A battery is not high-tech. But the app, the creative application to create an incubator where uh, economic activity is in the village, where there's you know, possibly things that save lives now being done in that village, and you're less dependent on this multi-hour voyage by cart to the nearest thing that passes yeah. for a city. Now you're, that, that's a huge improvement. And it's an example of somebody, I think, taking a medium tech approach, not low tech, not high tech, it's medium tech. Yeah. But, and and one more right. from the first book was the story of really, uh, this might seem disjointed, but the best stories sometimes do have disjointed elements. Wildlife conservation organizations realized you're never gonna get uh, local people on your side if you don't help solve their problems. This is why when you ask for what would I tell a minister, I'd first want to hear mm -hmm. them, hear how they see the world and how they see their problems. I'm not going to get anywhere unless I, I understand their view. And what these conservation groups realized is we're not going to get anywhere coming in here and parachuting in and preaching to some villagers, don't kill elephants. Mm -hmm. When the elephant comes in here and marauds your garden, the elephant is then the enemy. And you're, no Mazungo is going to convince you otherwise. So what they did was they started to explain, you know, first of all, look at non-lethal ways that you can keep wild animals away from your, your, your crops. The other thing they did is they listened in on, on, all right, so what are your pains? Oh, so we need to start helping with like female healthcare and female education and entrepreneurship education. You, you, want, you, you want better lives for you and your kids. We as a wildlife protection organization to win your hearts and minds and, and get you on the, seeing the same reality that we see that you have these priceless treasures walking around in your country and it's a loss to humanity for them to be gone. We got to start solving your problems, the problems of people. Uh, otherwise, you're never going to care about the problem that we like you to care about. That is kind of your problem because it's kind of in your country. <laughs> but we pretty much we really care yeah. about your animals. I guess we have to care about you. So they discovered. I, I hate to put it that way. And if, if anybody criticizes me, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to be amusing. But the point is, it led to a beautiful thing, which is some of these wildlife organizations really listening and trying to make a difference in people's lives through, you know, not just charitable work, but, you know, helping with that entrepreneurship education. You know, how, how can you how can you run a business that improves your life? What, what, you, you want help for your schools? Let's talk about that. And then they, what they started doing was, again, these medium tech interventions where they would 
you know, realize that the early warning indicator, this actually took an intelligence officer with, uh, who works in anti-terrorism in Africa and Asia to put together the details. Faye Cuevas, if you're ever watching or listening to this, thanks for, for sharing your story. It's a very cool one. She started to realize that, you know, first of all, all these black market activities on a large scale are connected, whether it's arms, drugs, terrorism, wildlife exploitation, even human trafficking. Often one is not isolated from others. And the people on the ground, the foot soldiers that might be going off to poach to go get that rhino horn, mm-hmm. what do you think they're doing on the way to where they're going to poach? Do you think these are nice guys that like always pay or do you think they sometimes engage in petty theft? Mm. No, these jerks sometimes steal from the local villages on the way. Local villagers like that? No. Is that an early warning indicator? Do you, do you sometimes... Uh, so what they call it getting left of boom. What that means is getting to someplace and intervening, intervening before somebody can set off a bomb or kill somebody. Yeah. What are, what are the early warning indicators that you know? Oh, they're in the area and they're going that way. So what they did was they built a data system. Again, this is not complex. It's not satellites. This is mobile phones and a computer. But what they did was that once they got friends in the local communities, they said, look, next time, next time somebody steals your tea and jumps on a motorcycle with their friend with a gun, do you mind uh, dropping us a text so we can put it into our database? That's a good one. Well, who doesn't yeah. want to do that when the jerks just ripped off your little mm. tea shop on the side of your road, right? Yeah, you don't, don't, don't call the police right away. You know, let them have the tea. But then let them – and what we're doing is uh, we're putting together a picture of where they're going. And then Kenyan Wildlife oh. Authority shows up. Oh, wow. And um, arrest yeah. them, hopefully, if the system is working and if, you know – if they do their jobs. But that's a story of medium tech. And that's a story, a nice story, I think, kind of like Anka Madagascar, where, sure, go ahead and paint them as world-saving delusional Mzungo, if that's if that's your cup of tea, if that makes you happy. But uh, that's a, an example where people, both local and international, you know, not from the local place, uh, looked at a problem and said, it was, there's got to be a creative way to solve this, because this is not good for anybody, right? Um, and how do we how do we solve problems and just be creative with the technology we have. And that's what they did. And I, I think in, when you asked about the future of technology in Africa, I'd like to, I think those are the stories that come to mind. Medium tech, it doesn't need to be the highest tech. You, know, you mentioned you were at an AI event. I'm wondering, do you, think, do you think everything needs to involve AI and blockchain? Or is it sometimes taking stuff that's not even the highest level of evolution and just creatively applying it? What do you think? I think for me, it's great to, to go to these conferences and see what AI will do for the continent in about 20 years. Um, but as you said, you don't need to have like the latest iPhone 14 Pro Max, da, 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 I don't know, 15 that's coming up in a couple of months to, to do some work, to do some interesting work in, you know, on the ground. But I feel like somehow some governments, some, some governments don't really uh, understand uh, other than maybe the e right here and there and e money here and there, they really don't comprehend how technology will change Africa and Africans. Knowing that eighteen, like, sorry, sixty percent of the continent is under 20, 25 or eighteen or something like that. So for me, seeing the generational, the Gen Z here in Europe, and trying to understand that there's a lot of Gen Zs back home, I'm like you know, the continent will not be the same. So if they're not trying to change ed tech, if not, they're not trying to change agri tech, if they're not trying to implement something in their governance, they will lose the country, basically. 
but I'm not saying everything has to be crypto. Everything has to be metaverse. Not yet. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have the infrastructure. We, I mean, if you don't have the street that's properly clean, I wonder if it is really, you have the time to kind of focus on what meta- metaverse is. But I'm 34, soon to be 35. I give myself 15 years. I'll, I want to see the Africa. <laughs> it was going to be maybe Silicon Valley all over the place here and there. Are we ready for that? Some countries are. Some countries, uh, you know. What are the countries that we need to keep an eye out in that area? You're, you're, by the way, your website with all your, um, with all your podcasts is so impressive. I can't wait to listen to more of them. But let me let, let me rattle off and tell me where the blank spaces in my knowledge. It seems like people talk about Cape Town, Joburg, Nairobi, Accra, and Dakar and Senegal. What what am I missing? What are the what, Oh, Lagos, Lagos, Lagos Abuja, Abuja. Yeah, you have to go okay. through Nigeria. If you don't go through Nigeria, it's uh, yeah, you know. And you you have to talk about Maghreb, Morocco, you yeah. know, uh, Algeria, and all these places. Yes, it is Africa. Yes, yeah. it's a bit different, but it's still on the continent, and they're still doing things as well that are relevant for the African culture. It could be in art space, for example animation, production movies, like media tech. Oh my goodness, we need some media uh, stuff. And and I feel like maybe it will not be Chad that's going to be the trendsetter. It will not maybe, I don't know, be South Sudan. But who knows? Maybe an Uber will come up from Eritrea or Djibouti. Yeah, Djibouti came up lately. But uh, Uber... It's not... Yeah. Um, very recently. Uh it's funny, but but not like the Uber or the Lyft that makes sense to the mm. Americans, because in Ethiopia, for example, there is not even Uber. There is a, their version of, you know, because the the chick who was there, who used to live in America, went back home, understood that Uber doesn't make sense there, Lyft doesn't make sense there, and then she was like, oh, let me do something that's quite different, and she's making loads and loads why, of money. Good for why her. Did, so it seems like another story of big tech failing and somebody coming up with a local alternative. What, what, what? How did Uber and Lyft, why did they not work in that situation? They don't understand, oh, please, oh, plus, it's in Ethiopia, it's so close, you know, mm-hmm. it's so, like, their culture to understand, you have to be, as you said before, and I love that word, it's humility, to understand, take the time, take the time to sit down and understand the culture of the of the city, of the region, and of the country. Mm-hmm. To say that Ethiopians are all the same, it's crazy. To say that all Burundians were all the same, is crazy. To say that all Americans are all the same, is different. So for her, having had these two experiences, the American one, and the Ethiopian, my understanding is that she started a company <laughs> hiring women. Now the women can call their Uber or Lyft mm-hmm. because they don't want to have a male driver. Oh, see, it's cr- yeah, exactly. It makes sense. But you're like, what? But it's true. I heard a story years ago of an Indian chick who got raped by four or five people, like either in a bus or in an Uber place. Mm-hmm. And it happens, you know, I don't take Ubers for personal reasons, but, and I wonder like, oh, back home, will I take an Uber? Mm, honestly, I will take a, no, I don't think so. I'll hire a car. You know, I'll go to us. I'll go to Avis. I wonder if they had difficulty recruiting female drivers or did the female drivers know, well, I'm only going to be paired with female passengers. And exactly. so suddenly the willingness went way up because it's, this is not meant to be sexist at all. It's just not no. that it's so unusual Uber and Lyft in Europe or the United States to get a female driver. There's such a lower percentage of drivers. 
which means you have more women in the marketplace, more women driving, more women getting money. I mean, it's 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 such a simple explanation. I think you should get into, I mean, I'm trying to get her on the podcast, hopefully next year, but I think you should meet her if you go to Ethiopia and I, I get to see, because I saw the, their Uber and it makes sense. Not everybody have a smartphone, so you, you have to call a certain place and then obviously the GPS is different and they know, basically they know how to locate you, whether you like it or not. And it's not their, their Google it's them, you know, and it's like, oh, it makes sense. Okay, so that's why I say, hey, those are the things that, as you said, these are medium tech, but things are changing, and I'm so happy to see that so many experiences, be it the diaspora, be it people on the ground, be it you who get to travel there and come back with more stories, and, you know, reading and hearing you, I'm like, oh, actually, I should travel here. I should go to Somalia. Maybe not now, but, you know, in the years ahead, I want to go to Burma. I heard a lot of good things about Burma uh, recently, and I'm like, what? Because I felt like my my filter was the, I don't know, the French TV, the American TV, where I'm like, mm. they were like, no, 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 no. It's like there's a party scene there. I was like, Burma? <laughs> like, la Birma ni quoi? I was so happy to hear that. And I'm like, yeah, those are the things that I'd rather put on the on my calendar to go and visit and have fun and then go home and have a different experience because you get to travel Europe. I'm pretty sure Poland is the same as Switzerland. It's the same as uh, Spain at this point. You're like, I'm trying to try to, you know, novel things and, yeah. you know, uh, and those other things, you either find them in Asia, South America or Africa. So far, I haven't visited most African countries. So I well, it's, there's a lot there. of them, 54 of them. 50 one. men. Yeah. Number so, two. Visas, um, visas are oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about visa for you imagine for me oh, no although east africa it's better now but yeah, yeah it's yeah. ridiculous those are the things i need to work on actually i, I forget if is burundi part of the east african yeah yeah, yeah. oh course. thank thank god yeah yeah um the other thing is the fascinating thing is the you can see both the it's both a reflection of wealth of, of, and a reflection of of colonial patterns that the only way to get to certain places is through an old colonial capital. Absolutely. Like for me to go to Mali or Senegal, I have to go to the French embassy and ask for the, I mean, yep. let's go. Let's uh, if you want to go to, um, I forget what year this was, so it might've changed, but uh, for a long time, the the part of France that's in South America, French Guyana, uh, you couldn't mm. come from North America or South America. You had to come from, from Paris um, for, for Sao Tome. <laughs> Cheaper. The other way to, they do have a local right. airline. They do have their right. national airline that goes to Lisbon, but the only other one is TAP. Oh yeah, yeah, TAP. Yeah. yeah. yeah what what were the one? What was the one you were thinking of? No, no, no. I was just no, no, no. But just but still, visas for me are still. I'm like I have to First go all, through yeah. Paris and have to go through Lisbon to go to. I mean, and 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 then you have experiences like a, literally an embassy telling you um, quickly, quickly go to our online system, uh, pay money, and schedule your appointment if you want to go in February because it's already early December. Ah, okay. Early, De early December seems like you have oh, plenty wow, of time. Yeah. Okay, let's take that on its face. If I did what they told me to do, and if I had paid up on Friday, you know what I found mm -hmm. out Monday morning. There are no more visa appointments. You're not getting your visa this no. year. No. Oh, that's a good yeah. one. <laughs> and, I said, but, and, 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 and this is the same person who said, quickly, quickly, log in and pay up. And, I said, and I, I've learned to not throw a fit. I've learned immediately to just go with, well, when is the next window mm. of opportunity? We don't know. We can't tell you. Mm. And then you say, well, your laws officially wow. say that actually 
up to seven days, you don't need a visa. Could you confirm that? Because you are the embassy for mm -hmm. that country, are you not? Yes. Why don't you give us a number? And we'll call <laughs> you back. Call you call. back. Yeah. Um, so, so again, I, 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 uh, I hope this is amusing and doesn't sound too much like first world <laughs> problems, but, but then you, you call people there and they're like, they have their own story. It's, it's actually what we bond mm. over sometimes is the, uh, disbelief with the bureaucracy. And, and then, um, the thing that I've stumbled across now, uh, I've learned this, uh, this is going to be my default if, if nobody else can take care of something is, uh, the local tour agents apparently say, um, "We, you know, buy a tour with us. You don't even need to send your passport anywhere. There'll be a visa on arrival waiting for you within a week." That's a good one. Oh, that's a so, good yeah, one. So, yeah, if anybody does have the resources and has run out of patience and is desperate and either for business or personal reasons really need to get them somewhere, the official visa services will tell you it'll take one to three weeks to get something done. The tour, and you'll need to give up your passport for that amount of time. The local tour guides will sometimes uh, be able to arrange for a visa on arrival. Okay, so I. This is yet to be tested. Yet to be tested if it actually you works. You will let me know in January, February, because you're traveling there. Just to finish, because it's been two hours now that I've taken your time. Where are the countries you're going to visit? Who do you want to meet there? If you go to East, South, who do you want to meet? Who do you want to talk to? Oh, first of all, if you're listening to this or watching this and you haven't gotten sick of the sound of my voice <laughs> and I don't seem like a too much of a crazy Mzungo and you think you're either going to be amused or find value in your story being shared, I invite you. First of all, again, you, you'd be grossly negligent not to try to find my book so I can I'll sign it for you. I'll give the links, absolutely. Uh, Extreme Entrepreneurship and, and look for volume two. Um, so get in touch if you want to be a host, if you want to meet me at an airport mm -hmm. and you promise not to rip me off. <laughs> Uh, I, I welcome having new friends. Uh, and My listeners try, are not that way. <laughs> I will try to reciprocate. Yeah, if prove to me that your listeners are awesome, <laughs> Alex. Um, so uh, the next thing is you asked for plans, and I, I, I'm, I'm actually hesitant a little bit to disclose every date and exact location. Not just date, but just like actors. Just I mean, you just never know, right? Like, why flag? Hi. I'm going to be the Mazunga at the airport on this day. <laughs> um, so thanks for understanding uh, that some places it's just yeah. it's good not to, not to flag it for the whole world anyways. Uh, but I will say that there will be time in West Africa, which is one of the places mm -hmm. that I have not, like East Africa and in the southern part of the continent, I've spent time. Mm -hmm. In the West, I really haven't. So starting with um, you know, some of the places that are uh, what, what we call the gateway countries, like the countries that um, are a little bit easier yeah. to get by. Yeah, sure. uh, so supposedly people have told me, you know, start with Senegal, start with Ghana, yeah, the Gambia, and then you know things uh, get interesting. Um, so I, I might be in Benin and, and mm -hmm. pass through through Togo on the way to Ghana. That's part of the plan. Okay. Um, there is somebody uh, with a business in Sierra Leone, and we're talking about a little bit later in the year, trying to get through that corner there of the southwest of that hump that goes out into the Atlantic. Yeah, yeah. Between Cote d'Ivoire and up through the two Guineas, Guinea and Guinea-Bissau. Mm -hmm. That's another leg. Oof, oof. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Nigeria is a must, as you've said. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm in touch with three entrepreneurs. 
the new chair of our marketing department. Hi, Vinny. If you're, uh, if you're a Babson fan, if you're a student, a faculty member, an administrator watching to see what silly thing I say next, congratulations, <laughs> Vinny, on being our new marketing department chair. There, we have a Nigerian. We have uh, a, a proud African uh, running one of our divisions. So I hope that that uh, makes people click on That's great. on us to, ch to check us out. But, but Vinny, uh, if you're watching this, I, I will... Uh, be begging for leads or help uh, with uh, Nigeria. That'll be later in the year, probably, because mm. one of the people I want to interview is will be in the country later in the year. Okay. Now, there's a bunch of wish list items that I'm talking about with a former student from South Sudan, um, and that includes some of the neighboring countries. Some of these are a bit stretch mm. goals, and I'm not sure how much of it is really doable, but you know, you got to dream. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned is that even if you make for, try to make five plans and two have to be aborted and shelved for later. All right. Um, at least you have the plans now researched, you have some contacts yeah. and maybe it'll work out next time. And in the process, you meet people like I met you, mm. um, that, you know, Burundi was a, a spark in the mind of, yeah. wait a second, I'm going to be in Rwanda. Why not check out yeah. Burundi? Do I know anything about it? Mm. Nope. Um, Am I in a place full of Africans right now? Yes. Start asking around. Mm. And, and lo and behold, we're talking. So these things sometimes are a little bit, um, the process of reaching out and it brings its own rewards, even if you never managed to make it there, or even if the visit is very brief and in passing, it's in transit to somewhere else. Uh, you learn things, you meet people, you learn about what you don't even know. You sure. learn about sure. the gaps that you didn't even know to ask about. Mm. And so I find that the process of planning, I even know somebody lately that has my respect. He doesn't actually buy the ticket. He doesn't go anywhere, but he researches the hell out of these places and the routes. And I was so impressed by that, that it's almost like an armchair uh, tourist, <laughs> except, you know, he'll never know about, you know, some of the details that hit you in the face when you're there. Uh, so anyways, that's a bit of a picture, but look, any of the places I mentioned that I did not mention, uh, Mali and Burkina Faso, Right, worth in some of the places mm -hmm. I did mention. They're objects of fascination. Uh, Simone, who put a, us in touch, I know he has contacts in Mali, so maybe he'll help out. Um, anyways, I'm open to people's suggestions, and there's all the way from basically, technically been to Namibia, but Namibia deserves a more thorough visit. From that part of the coast of Angola, Congo, uh, Equatorial Guinea, and Gabon, uh, over through that coast, I would be totally open to it. I have. How much left of the sabbatical? I, I applied and got released from teaching through the end of August. So these next eight months, I am geographically free. And it was because I wrote a proposal to, hey, give me, give me, every seven years we're allowed to get a year off from teaching and mm -hmm. half pay. I said, I'm taking it. If people are wondering, I'm totally self-financing. Mm -hmm. um, I saved my money and it's there to basically buy tickets and visas. So tell me what Guys, tell me where to go. Email me. You can find me online. I'm not hidden. Uh, tell me where to go. And exactly. I'll, on LinkedIn. And I'll try to go. Absolutely. And if you want to call me on anything Absolutely. I've said, if anything was over the top stupid or brilliant, <laughs> or if you're totally neutral, get in touch and tell me. Or if they want to add more context to it. No, thanks. Thanks a lot for your time. It's it's funny, as you said, that uh, is it serendipity? I don't know how, how the word works. Really, sometimes it's really funny. Uh, six months ago, you were, I was like, this is a crazy conversation I'm having in a Parisian cafe about Burundi and, you know, a Burundian entrepreneurship. And there you go here. Doing a and then we had lunch with that Ghana guy with the recycling idea. 
Absolutely. He yeah, absolutely. Cleaning him. the beaches because the beaches kept getting full of pollution from the rivers. So then he said, well, why don't I gather the plastic from the rivers? There you go. And it's funny because we're still in touch. And I remember just thinking like, how crazy three three years ago you could have told me you're going to work into this theory and i'm like nah media is not for me but then again we have this conversation you're traveling all over africa more than me i guess but i'll be traveling in africa so i think i hope that somebody will just like have the same connections alex we have to really we, we, seriously because ghana, ghana I, will a, I, will give, I will give you a more detailed calendar actually sure. i don't mind sharing with people that, that look there's going to be a, a spot or it's going to be time in january that i'll be on that western side and if people want to know if people want to know details, uh, I can, like with you, I don't mind sharing dates. I know you. Um, I'll, I'll, you make sure, I'll make sure they know. And if they, because I know some friends really, I mean, some friends are in West Africa, but I know lots, lots of listeners, uh, to be honest, are located in that space. So you do speak a bit of French. So for those who are in Senegal and speak French, or, you know, try to attempt to, to talk to you. Uh, to not be scared and just to reach out to you and say, hey, I really want to help the guy. If he he wants to stay four days in my place and whatever, it's not it's not a scary place because, you know, this is, it's, not it's, every it's, African it's, lives in a shack. Let's be real. Uh, no, they don't. And um, and you've seen the, that. It is, <laughs> it, 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 I have seen it. And if, if anybody's listening to this, deciding whether to go, and they're convinced that uh, you know, there's just horrible, painful stereotypes that sometimes come up that you just got to laugh at it the whole idea of you know people running around in what grass skirts and living in huts no 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 no, no. it's <laughs> yeah uh, it's you, you made me want to yeah. say something other than just that it was something about um oh yeah i should flag for it uh, for folks that it is one way that some of the people i've met uh moving around i am not mm -hmm. an expert at this as much as some people some people have actually been to all the world's countries and have never stayed at a hotel they just live on on the website couch surfing and um, they make friends they open up their home mm. to foreign visitors to sleep on yeah. for free and in exchange you mm. you know you develop a reputation as a safe host and then uh when you're on the road you look up people and um they it's basically a sort of a karma based economy where you, you sleep on people's couches and they sleep on yeah. yours and uh i again i have not done that as much yeah. um Although hostels are a great thing, if uh, um, if anybody's looking to save money, uh, cheap hotels and hostels are a, a great way to keep things within a. I worked in hospitality, so I could say <laughs> yes and no. Hostels, I'm not a huge fan. Great uh, time talking to you. Thanks a lot, and have a great day.